This episode is sponsored by Newcom, and as many of you know, I only bring sponsors onto this show whose products I truly swear by. Now, we are an overworked and underslept population, especially those of us that wear uniform for a living. And trying to reclaim some of the lost rest and recovery is imperative. Now, the application of this product is as simple as putting on headphones and a sleep mask. As you listen to music on each of the programs, there is neuroacoustic software beneath that is tapping into the actual frequencies of your brain, whether to upregulate your nervous system or downregulate. Now, for most of us that come off shift, we are A, exhausted, and B, do not want to bring what we've had to see and do back home to our loved ones. So one powerful application is using the program PowerNap a 20-minute session that will not only feel like you've had two hours of sleep, but also down-regulate from a hypervigilant state back into the role of mother or father, husband or wife. Now, there are so many other applications and benefits from this software, so I urge you to go and listen to episode 806 with CEO Jim Poole. Then download Newcom, N-U-C-A-L-M, from your app store and sign up for the seven-day free trial. Not only will you have an understanding of the origin story and the four decades this science has spanned, but also see for yourself the incredible health impact of this life-changing software. And you can find even more information on Newcom.com. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show former Secret Service Special Agent and current Head of Security for multiple bands, John Guarneri. Now, in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics, from John's journey into law enforcement, protecting presidents, the insurrection, fitness and preparation, his transition story, entering the world of security mental health and musicians, his own podcast, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 850 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you John Guarneri. Enjoy. Well, John, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you to BC Sanders for connecting us. And secondly, I want to welcome you onto the Behind the Shield podcast today. It's uh, it's great to be here. I, uh, It's weird every time someone asks me, like, because I, I run my own podcast, and whenever I get asked to go on someone else's, people that follow my podcast always watch and tune in because I get to be more myself, where if you have a guest, like, as you know, you're focused on that guest, but... When I jump on someone like yours, people get to know or hear more things about me that I normally wouldn't talk about when I'm talking to other guests. Like I don't, I don't, I never self-promote myself per se. 
I think I know what I'm talking about with certain aspects of security, uh, but it's all about the guests. And like having the opportunity to be on a show like yours, it's it's just super rad. And you've had some amazing guests from all walk of life. Uh, it was funny because I'm with the Shinedown guys, and we were talking about two weeks before you reached out, the King of Chemo guy uh, who's running and doing all this stuff and bringing awareness to like cancer research. And we we're just like, man, what a cool guy. I'd love to have him on my podcast. Like, this is such a, a inspiring. And here you get to talk to him. And I tell Eric, I'm like, oh, dude, I get to do this guy's podcast who actually talk to this guy. It's, it's stuff like that. It's a super rad about this. Yeah, they say, what, seven degrees of separation? I think when you yes. get into this and there's this circle of trust, all of a sudden it's one degree of separation and you're talking to that person. I've had, you know, yeah. Wim Hof and Hoist Gracie and, and it's not, you know, oh, look at the list of names. It's more how many people just would love to ask some of these people questions and you're like shit i get to ask these people questions but not in a selfish way in a way that then you put it out on the internet and everyone gets to hear the answer so it's this beautiful kind of synergy of of communities you know i hate those word followers or fans that's bullshit it's a community of people that are all wanting to hear the same kind of conversations do you find it difficult to interview someone like a Wim Hof who's done everything from joe rogan he's such a iconic fixture in what he does but do you find it hard to ask questions that still engage your audience without coming off as boring yourself because i find it super difficult what i find and this is obviously seven years you know it's it's a it's an ongoing you know tradesman's journey if you like but um the the more episodes i've done the more people i've talked to the more interesting the questions become and one thing with whim I mean, over and over and over again, you know, we've heard and, it, you know, I can hear it a thousand times more. I mean, I think I just was actually watching a video of his t an hour ago. But, um, you know, we understand a lot of the, the breath work, the ice, the, the, the world records that he broke, the, um, the, the way they changed the physiology when they put the um, bacteria. And I mean, all these things, it was incredible. But no one had really dug into what. Was it, you know, that, that period where he lost his wife, when she took her life and he was a single dad. So that's kind of where we went. And so it's finding these little pockets. Like, I don't know if I've ever heard someone really talk about this. And this is what I try and do because it's interesting to the audience and it's interesting to the person. As you know, one of the best things you can ever get asked is, huh, either, either I've never really thought of it that way or I've never been asked that before. So that's kind of where I try and find what I call the space between the lines. Yeah, no, I, it's it's great. I love it. It's uh, for me. I I just get like when a guest is like after the interview and like you're still talking and whether you're recording or whatever it's gonna be aired or not. It's like those those conversations. I'm just like, I wish I went deeper on this part because I like sometimes when you talk to like a, a singer or songwriter, it's like sure you know about the public uh, dealings he's had with like drug addiction or mental health stuff, but then you realize, oh man, he 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 brushed across this thing where he had this terrible relationship with his father or his wife passed away it's like that stuff right there it's like now i kind of get why maybe he went to the drug addiction or these issues have popped up but it's like i always go back and rewatch stuff and be like if i get a second chance to be with this person and talk to them i want to dig down here because like you it's like that's the stuff that people you could go to a men's health magazine and breathing techniques cold water oh by wim hof and be like the, the basics it's amazing People like you that talk to them, you, then you're like, now I get why this guy ticks. Now I get why he moves this way, why he feels this way. And I think there's, and you said, there's just something fun about organic conversations with like, yeah, sure, there's an agenda, the discussion, but 
It's just the free talkie of people. I think we've kind of lost sight of that. Yeah. Well, I think there's so much value to it. You think about storytelling, you know, which is, again, a good host asks questions and then, you know, allows the person to speak and tell stories. That was, you know, ancient tribalism at its finest. You know, we didn't have writing a long, long time ago. We had cave paintings, maybe, or hieroglyphics, but it was storytelling. And you think about even warriors coming home sebastian Junger talks about this you know there was the the ceremonies where they they did the war dances and you know they told you know what what happened and who died and who was heroic and so there was a kind of you know sense of community like we were talking about before we hit record where people know what you know they're in this case warriors did for them or the hunters did or you know the people that gathered all the food for that feast that night and so i think we have lost that because when we lose the story, we start pigeonholing people and making them a two-dimensional label rather than an actual human being that's part of our community. Right. No, I agree 100%. It's just, it's just awesome. It's like, I don't know. I was so familiar with podcasting like before. Like I'm obviously in tune with Joe Rogan's uh, sporting uh, sport podcast I listened to and stuff. But like through the pandemic, I, my biggest fear was like when I do doing security, traveling the world with artists or whatever – I love my job because I get to talk to different people, different walks of life. I can walk into a city or a venue anywhere in the world and be like, I know this guy, I know his family. And when you lose that for two years, I was like, the I being told to wear a mask, can't talk to people, can't hug someone. It's like that type of the communication to be told you can't do that. I was like, well, I need to still maintain this. That's why I started mine. It's like, it's cool. Just, I love that human connection with people and building an audience of like-minded people that might not agree with who the guest is or what I'm saying, but it's a free conversation that there's no, you're not being censored. We're not being told what we can't say or what ask. One of the reasons I keep denying sponsors is because every time they reach out to me, they want me to go a certain way. I'm like, I don't, one, I don't need the money. And two, the fact that I'm being told to have a certain guest on or what to say or what to ask or promote it goes against everything why I started this thing. And I think these healthy conversations should not be told or be be kind of like pigeonholed into an area that's not organic. Yeah, I agree completely. I, I've had a handful of sponsors, you know, that kind of rotate through. And all of them I have pursued because I use their things. And when they come on as guests and they see the podcast, there's never, ever, uh, oh, we need you to do this. It's always like, all right, it's awesome. We're, we're in. And that's the kind of person that you want. Yeah. No, I agree. It's awesome. We talked about music, so let's just get to where you are today, then we'll start at the beginning of your story. So tell me where on planet Earth you are today and why you're there. I am currently in Rogers, Arkansas. Uh, we have a day off. I'm on tour. I've been doing uh, security director for Shinedown since 2017, and we're on tour with Papa Roach and Spirit Box, and uh, all the shows have been selling out, doing great and uh have a day off and uh we have about two more or three more weeks left of this run and then it ends in denver on the october 20th and then i'm home for a couple days and i fly to japan australia uh with motley crew def leppard for about three and a half weeks to finish that end of the stadium tour for the world there and then uh my year kind of slows down from there and then it picks right back up in january with all this, the artists and stuff start doing their stuff again for the new year but uh yeah i do security private security for bands and um it's a it's been a truly rewarding experience doing what I do. And to even go back even further, it's like I was in the Secret Service for the seven, eight years prior. And so for me, I'm dumb to 
world leaders, celebrities. Celebrity to me is just, I'm more excited talking to you than I would walk into my favorite actor just because it's, this is organic and real where you talk to these celebrity people and you're like, they're just, I don't know. Like they're not real. It's, I don't know. They're real people, but they're not like, and so I'm so numb to what I do where it's just, I can just hyper-focus on my job, which is I might not agree with who the president is or what the singer is talking about, but my job is to make sure they can be go home to their loved ones at night. And now I'm not saying I'm willingly throw myself out there uh, to re- to protect someone um, who I might not – I'm not protecting a racist or a homophobe. I've turned down uh, doctors uh, who worked with Planned Parenthood just because it gets, it gets my beliefs. And I don't wish them ill will, but I'm in a part of my life where I can pick and choose who I protect. And it's just, it's a very rewarding thing. The shine down guys are amazing. Um, everything they do with the mental health and the fitness stuff they push. It's just, it's cool to be surrounded by people that respect you, what you do, but also allow you to expand and grow and can do there for a reason. And they trust me with their lives and so are their families. So um, it's again, it's been super rewarding and uh, coming out of the pandemic to jump back into uh, what it was pre pandemic has been amazing. It's actually been more work just because all these bands and people are trying to make up for the lost time. Right. And so it's, it's been awesome. It was so sad watching what happened when everything shut down. And again, I've oh. talked about this many, many times. To me, there was a very obvious middle ground. There were people that were vulnerable that this was actually going to be very dangerous for. And then there were lots of people that were more than capable of working during this and keeping everything going. And, you know, this whole stay at home, don't ask any questions, you know, get alcohol and fast food delivered to your house while we close the beaches and gyms was insanity to me. And if you wrote down, how do you make a country weaker and sicker? That was exactly what you do. But then the mental health side. And when the reason why I do three a week is is when this first hit, I was watching all the clickbait bullshit on the television. And I'm like, well, I'm going to put more interviews out of people that are doctors and nutritionists and exercise physiologists and everyone that people can have actionable information so they can reclaim some of their lives even if they're told to stay in a flat in london or you know wherever they are but what was beautiful was doing the first spartan run when that was allowed you know go to the concerts go on a cruise and just start filtering back and i think a lot of people it might be forgotten now but i think a lot of people at the time realized just how important human interaction is like you said conversations hugs i mean all these things that would just strip from people and it's interesting now with this conversation of people trying to suggest that we're going to go back to that where 95% of the world are like, don't, <laughs> don't even fucking yeah. think about it. <laughs> right. It's uh, when you talk about the gyms closing for me, I, I was able to kind of be creative and kind of find my fitness again, like my love of fitness and doing all that stuff. But like I, you sit back and in the world I'm in, the two things that, you, there really are no doctors per se that will say this cures mental health or it saves lives, but fitness and music and the arts and Broadway and theater and Ted talks, whatever it is that you go out in a setting to hear other people perform their art, whether it's a live painting and stuff, you tell people they can't do that. What do you think was going to happen? Like no one ever pushes about like the suicide rate going up, the domestic abuse rates going up and all this stuff that's, attached to the fact that you're forced people to stay at home. And I remember the one time 
when he, the grocery stores, you'd walk in there and there was no music playing on the on the on the thing on the intercom like they normally do. And that there's arrows telling you how to go around here. And like I live in a small town, so I'm like, come on, no one's really following this, are they? I got reprimanded like three weeks into like when they first goalposts were put up, and I'm like. Dude, you know who I am. Like, you know, we hug, we talk, we talk about sports. And now it's, you put this fear in people and people just lost sight of that human empathy. And it's just, I felt so bad for the elderly folks and these kids that were told they can't go to school. Now they're two, three years behind in terms of social interaction. And it's just, I don't know, man. And then you see these crowds I'm in front of today where people are literally crying for two hours. Because they couldn't have that, and they the song hits differently now because it has a different meaning to them. And I I used to take that stuff for granted when I did. Oh, it's just another tour. It's just I'm back in Arkansas. There might never be a, the world could shut down tonight again, right? And so I could get hurt. I might not be able to do this again. So I I take that for granted, and I look at fans differently who go to the shows now because it's like I used to be like, why is this person crying? Like we're talking a. Iron Maiden song, and this person's bawling, and I'm like, but now I get it. That that might be a bar song for me when I'm drinking with my buddies, but that song hits differently, and you see the emotion. It it's just I'm truly rewarded with what I do, and I try not to take this stuff for granted. But yeah, that pandemic stuff was wild. I had a beautiful moment. I went to see Falling in Reverse and Avenged Sevenfold about oh, two God. weeks ago. Amazing Ronnie's concert. The, Ronnie's the best. He is amazing, <laughs> and he, I I love. Falling in reverse so much because none of their music sounds the same. Then they do their reimagined ones. You're like, oh my god, you yes. turn this up tempo song into this most majestic Papa Roach ballad. Yeah. Oh yeah, amazing. Yeah. But um, Avenged Sevenfold, I think it was far away. If I got that song title right, but anyway, it was one that they dedicated to their drummer who they lost um, Bev, uh, 15 yeah. years ago. And so they start singing, and I look around, and it's in this amphitheater in. Uh, where were we? West Palm. And, um, and so the sun has started to set by that point. And I look around and it's just a sea of cell phone cameras. But it's not just the cameras. When I'm looking at the faces, there's tears. And I realized right then, it's a combination, like you said, I'm sure, of just being together again. But also, every single person probably has got some sort of trauma. And there were thousands of people. So I actually kind of scanned. The only video I took of the whole thing is I hate that when you're trying to watch it in the video. And yeah. it, but I took a video of the crowd. And it was just this realization like everyone is connected by this song and we're all having this shared experience because it might have been, you know, a younger person who just simply lost a boyfriend or a girlfriend and they had their heart broken or someone lost their mother to cancer or it was a suicide or an overdose or whatever. But you could just see it like you'd feel it was palpable. And that to me is the power of, you know, music, especially in the concert saying. Yeah, it's uh. When we go to the European festivals, like the crowds there, I mean, as you could attest to, it's just, I think Europe, other countries outside of America, just culturally, I think music entertainment is just more in their blood, where it's just, I find the crowds that much better, right? And so I, every time we're there, they do like a changeover, or like a song like In the End or Numb by Linkin Park. When it starts, the, the PA cuts off and then people keep singing the song because they resonate with Chester and obviously with his suicide or a Chris Cornell song with his suicide. I just think it's those people that are singing that song so loud. You're just it's a cathartic. They know someone died of suicide. They didn't really know Chester or Chris, but the song and the emotion that song emits 
resonates with because they know someone who committed suicide or they know someone struggling with mental health or addiction. And it's just a wild, and there's moments out there where you just see that stuff. And it's like you and I could hear the song a hundred times and oh, it's a great song. The person that hears it for the hundred first time or for the first time reacts completely different. And it's just such a cool, it's just wild. It's just not to go back to the pandemic, but it's like it's so crazy that the first things, some of the first things they took away were the no more sport events, no more concerts, no more Broadway. And it's just like I don't think you realize the impact that would have on people's lives. When you talk about Chester, we saw him in um where was I? I think it was Tampa. They played with 30 Seconds to Mars, one of the oh, best concerts I've ever seen, yeah. those two together. And then Chris <laughs> played with um uh, welcome to Rockville in Jacksonville, where Shinedown play all the time as well, or played when they were still in Jacksonville. But my wife had lost a boyfriend prior to me to suicide, and he literally uh. took his own life on the phone to her. You know what I mean? So Oof. then, you know, Chris and then Chester, and it's just, just you know, so she can't even listen to Linkin Park songs anymore. Yep. I was so moved by One More Light, which sadly they released not too long before we lost him. And uh, sorry, let me say it again. I was moved by the, the song so much that I actually named the book that I wrote "One More Light," and it's an ode to them because that that uh, lyric, "Who cares if one more light goes out in the sky of a, a thousand stars or a million stars, whatever it is?" Um, I do, and as a firefighter, as a first responder, every single life is important, which is what made that whole white lives, black lives, whatever matters bullshit. Like every yep. single life matters. And so I used that title not only to represent what my book was about, but as a, a nod to Chester and the musicians that we'd been impacted by. Not like you said directly, we didn't know them, but they represented the pain, especially in my wife's life. We, uh, we So DC 101, it's a rock alternative station, I believe, in, in Washington, D.C. area. And so Shinedown, they started a, a suicide prevention walk, One More Light, based on Chester's um, – the song or something was obviously attached to Chester when he passed away. And so trying now we've, I've done that walk three or four times with them and they actually performed one year in front of the uh, reflection pool. And it's such a, it's, it's just, I don't know. Like I, I never got to work with Chester. I never knew Chester. I love the music and I feel like, I, I don't know if I love him more because he did pass away. I don't, it's like it's a weird feeling because I don't, I never grew up really on the music. Like I loved it. I love the album they did with Jay Z. Uh, I, I mean, I love the some of the stuff, right? But I never got to. I never paid to go to the concert. I never saw them per se on my own dime. Um, but when I hear that stuff, I see, like you said, that impact a a person has on these people. It's, it it makes me love the person more outside of music. Because it's like, yes, music was their vessel to put their subject matter out there and hard on a sleeve. And this is, you have my addiction, my mental health, my suicidal thought, but here I am. And then now I'm gone. The memories of the music still remains, but the pain that it's just, it's such a weird thing for me. Cause I never, I don't understand suicide and I don't, obviously that's going to come off as very like, I've always, I've known friends that committed suicide. I just don't, I don't like the fact that I don't know why they did. Now, obviously, I've had guests on my podcast and I've read books and I talk to people that have suicidal thoughts and I get it. 
But I just don't – I can't imagine the immense amount of pain. And me not even knowing Chester or Chris or someone that – I don't even know that committed suicide. If they gave me 1% of their pain, they could still be alive maybe. And it's like I, I just – it's so tough for me to like comprehend suicide. It's why – I just don't get it. After so many conversations on here, I started seeing glaring common denominators. And I think one of the problems with people trying to understand suicide is you can't do it with a healthy brain. Because you, ah, you're yeah. literally, you're trying to understand what it's like for someone whose brain has been miswired. It's the best way of describing it. And I've had a lot of people on here that were right there and something stopped them on their suicide attempt. I had a couple that went through with it and survived. And every single one, of course, there's a sense of the suffering and not wanting the, you know, just wanting it, the pain to end. But with that outside looking in conversation of how could they, it's so selfish, it's so cowardly, think of your kids their reality is so blurred that they genuinely seem to believe that they are a burden to the ones they love. Right. So when you look at it through that lens, which makes no sense to a healthy brain, but makes that's, right. that is their reality, and then you factor in, especially in my community, people in uniform that volunteered to give up their lives if they had to for other people. If you believe that your family's better off, then suicide is actually a courageous act. It's wrong. It's a distorted view, yeah. but it's actually a courageous and terrifying act for them. I'm sure it's it's got to be horrible before. And so many people like Kevin Hines that jumped off the Golden Gate yes. Bridge, the moment he left, he was like, no, but it's too late if you've pulled the trigger, for example, or taken you know too many pills or whatever it is. And I think one of the most tragic stories to underline this, we had two police officers in Florida a few months ago, young, young couple, one, I think it was the the boyfriend took his own life first, and then it was barely a week the the girlfriend did, and they left behind a, a an infant son, or I think yep. an infant child, and so there's no way of understanding that. But it just happened to be that perfect storm of two people that obviously had a lot of demons already, and then you factor in, I'm sure, the the pressures of the job and sleep deprivation and all these other things that contribute. And then these happen. And this is what's so sad is it is preventable most of the time. You're going to have, you know, this. I think there's an understanding that some are just so acutely suicidal that they just will. There's no way around it. But so many people, if you can pull them, like you said, from that precipice and give them the treatment to start down-regulating that traumatized, broken mind, you can pull them from that. But the problem is, this is what I want to dive in with you, there's no... Um, better example of the stigma than musicians because up until very recently they're like well you know they were druggies you know oh well that's yeah. what happens rock and roll lifestyle and it's so sad because these are just little kids that happen to grow up playing guitar or singing and now there's almost a lack of empathy for Kurt Cobain or whoever it was because of that industry so I kind of wanted to get, we jumped ahead a bit but it's, we're there and it's beautiful have you had any conversations with stigma in the musicians that you've been with? Because obviously Motley Crue and Def Leppard, you're talking 80s, you know. So what has been the genesis of the awakening in their profession? I'm fortunate to work with artists that are so open about their struggles uh, in addiction, whether it's addiction, to, they had a prior addiction to pills or booze or sex, uh, the, the suicide attempts, um, I know people have read The Dirt with Nikki Six and stuff and Heroin Diaries. Like He's very open about his addiction and how many times he's been brought to death and all this stuff. And it's it's endearing to me because 
they're now so open about it and willing to talk to people about it. It's like when they do like meet and greets or do interviews and stuff like that. Sure. The people talk about all the new song. How do you write this album? How do you produce this? Cool. But the, when they start getting asking questions about the mental health or addiction or this stuff, that's when you see them become the most like badass versions of themselves because they're, they're just throwing themselves out there to the wolves showing the world that, Hey, I, if I could beat this, you could beat this. And it's, and I, like, I always, the people I, I work with, they have the bad days. And like, it's documented that they have a mental health day or they just have a terrible, they don't want to wake up. It's like talking to them about that, me asking my questions, being so naive to a lot of that because I don't understand it. Right. And so it's so, it, it brings it, it makes me realize how vital not only all humans are, but the people that provide a, a form of art for people that say this artist doesn't want to wake up tomorrow and chooses not to. You're talking thousands, millions of fans that only wake up because this artist is still alive. They have a chance to hear the song this year, so they're going to stay alive for another year because the band's touring. And it's like when that when I think of that stuff, I'm like, man, it's just wild. And so it's. I work uh, trying down the bass player Eric Bass. He struggles with mental health and good to bad days, and he always talks about battling his demons and like this this ebb and flow of like having a good day and a bad day, and seeing someone go through that, um, it's tough for me because like you're I'm there to protect, but I can't physically. I'll do whatever I, I will tooth and nail right thick and thin. But the mental aspect, I can't fight that battle. It's like, so I'm always just like, how do I put myself in the best position to make sure he knows, yes, so physically I got his back, but when he has those bad days or when he's going through those days, I can be a vessel too and help you just talk through it. Because I find dealing with these artists and even people I tour with, other crew people, the, the ones that, as long as you talk to them and allow yourself to be that guy that or girl that could be like a safe space for them to approach and talk to. And I think that's for me, that's my biggest thing and advice I'd give to people who want to jump on the road and do what I do. Cause I've been home 17 days this year. Um, and I have dealt every day I've been on the road, there's been not an issue, but a day where you've had to talk to someone off a ledge or uh, they're having a shitty day at home because their their kid's sick and they're not there, or their wife and them are separating, or their father just passed away. And it's like Dealing with all these thoughts, and yes, they come off as bad thoughts, and they're always sometimes negative thoughts per se. It's just I feel like I'm serving a bigger a bigger purpose in doing what I do, just being there for these people. And it's just it's a very I don't know it, it makes me emotional just because it's so like it's I I don't know man it's just I feel so bad for those people that go through that and. I just wish there's more I could do. And talking about it, I'm sure helps avenues like yourself and other organizations that allow you to talk about this stuff. I think that's the best way we can come across to help people. Because when I see people in the crowds or like these bands or artists, I'll get letters from the local people. Hey, this was dropped off. And this person's like, Hey, I thought about killing myself last week, but I knew you were coming to town. And they write down these lyrics to a song that not even, not even a hit, like it's a B side. But this one song and this one lyric, and I hand it to the band. And sometimes we obviously artists get some crazy letters that, that you, these people should be in jail, right? <laughs> but then you get some of these letters where it's just like 
oh my god, holy shit! Like, and then you hand to the band, and they read it, and you keep these letters because this song that they might not have thought was a a single just saved a life. And if you save one life, you saved hundreds. And so if it's not this one letter, this one song, it's another song that's had the same impact. And for me, when I see that, I read those letters and you see like the the tear marks where they hand wrote the letters. It, it's super, it's like, for me, it, it just hits differently. It's, it's, it's totally surreal. I saw, I don't know if you saw this, uh, a video from probably about two months ago now, David Draymond from Disturbed talking about the fact that yeah. he almost took his own life. And again, shared yeah. it, you know, with the state. And this is the problem: is this is a human experience. And even to to look at the letters of the people that should be in jail, that's just another manifestation of mental health. You know, it's right. not the depression side; it's obviously a mania or whatever it was coming across at that right. moment. But you know, it extends even to. And I've just had this realization somewhat recently. If you think about the politicians that are shitbags, and you know, the heads of these corporations when their products are killing people. That's got to be mental health, too, because you couldn't sleep at night knowing that your cigarettes are taking hundreds of thousands of lives around the world unless you were a sociopath. You know, I mean, really, you just would that wouldn't be your product. You're like, I'm going to go into business, but I'm not going to make something that kills people. You know, you make something that helps. So yeah. it extends to everywhere, you know, to the politics, to um, CEOs, to you name it. You know, it might be depression, it might be anxiety, or it might be a level of 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 complete lack of empathy that we see in some of our people at the very very pinnacle of some of their careers right it's uh it's interesting you bring that up because it's like the people that create these pesticides or this stuff like my mom's side of the family is dairy farmers up in western new york and it's people want to knock dairy farmers and stuff like it's like not all dairy farmers are bad like i get it just fires me up right and so but when they talk about like the organics and the pesticides and like all this new laws and stuff that destroy crop, destroy natural streams and soils, it's how do those corporations willingly put a product at Home Depot or Lowe's or some tractor supply place knowing, sure, it'll kill the dandelions or whatever you're trying to kill in your grass, but the cows, the goats, the chickens, they're going to start mutating, they start dying and then it goes to eat this meat that's tainted and you can't grow soil. The water's contaminated. Now your wells are destroyed. It's like, yet these people are collecting all these paychecks and here we are just letting it. It's just, no one fights back to think it's that stuff. And these people that allow this stuff to happen, it's just, it is a mental health thing because we should all be on this earth to, you might not agree with one another, but why make it difficult for one another to live amongst each other? It's like, it's so wild, wild. It is indeed. Well, that was a good segue to your early life, so we'll kind of circle back to the music in a little while. So tell me where you were born, and tell me a little bit about your family dynamics, what your parents did, how many siblings. Uh, so I was born and raised in Massachusetts in uh, April 19th, 1985, and uh, both my parents were married. I was the oldest. Um, I have two sisters. Uh, one lives in Alaska now, and one lives in uh, Pennsyl or, yeah, Pennsylvania. And, uh, yeah, it was the upbringing was just awesome. Like very full dynamic, uh, church every Sunday. My dad was a, uh, plaster, uh, labor foreman for a big company corporation that, uh, took down and built the new Boston garden. So like all these crazy buildings and stuff in the new England area in Maryland. Um, and my mom was stay at home and they did it that way because she, 
they agreed that if in order to make sure these kids, our kids are raised right, we need a structure at home. And they weren't going to send us to daycare or something like that. So my mom, who was an incredible editor, graphic designer, she had this great newspaper idea that was about to kick off. She wanted to be in the FBI, passed all the paperwork and all that stuff. And then she was like, you know what? I, we have John coming and this is this is my duty. And so I've always resonated with that strong family dynamic. Um, and that's to say maybe the father can stay at home or the mom can work, whatever works for your family. But I've realized that having that type of connection home is what shaped me to be who I am today. And I'm loyal, passionate, hardworking. And, and I they raised me in a way where I give a shit. And so when you see like all this stuff happening in the world now with kids from broken homes, I feel for those kids because they don't have that that structure in place that I feel helped me. And a lot of my friends, uh, my close friends that like would die for, um, they came from the same type of background. So I don't know if it's a connection there where they're used to my parents yelling at them as we were growing up and vice versa. Uh, but it just, I just loved it. I love the idea of selflessness and hard work pays off and to have a faith you don't need to have a specific faith but for me growing up with catholic and christian and all that um as i got older i i started to like i find i i just appreciated that stuff growing up maybe as a kid you're like oh what church on a this homily is 45 minutes long what are we doing here and you just now as i get older i'm like those moments with your parents and your sisters it's powerful stuff. And like, I, I, as people get older and sick and stuff, and like you, I try, you try so hard to like maintain that and just make sure that that dynamic never changes. Like I never, our families have never gotten a major fight. All our cousins get along. Everyone just, it's just a great dynamic. And I'm just super fortunate about that. Now, did you grow up in a smaller town then? If you said that other parents were shouting at the other yeah, kids? Yeah. So we, I grew up in a town. Uh, so as, in my youth, I grew up in a town, uh, that was very small. And so, um, and then I moved to where I'm living now in Massachusetts, even smaller as I got older, which I appreciate because less people to talk to. Right. <laughs> uh, but it's, so I've always been, I've never been in a high school with more than 80 people. So my graduate class in high school, um, I was like 74 people. And then when I went to college, uh, I went to a military college in Vermont called Norwich. I graduated with less than 100 people there. So I've always been in a situation where I've never – I don't understand when I have these friends that are like, oh, my graduate class in high school was 2,200 people or my college class was – my criminal justice department was uh, 1,500. I'm like, how do you get to know these people? So I've always been in a position where I've always known every neighbor – every teacher, every kid in my school. And when I was a junior and senior in high school, my sister Noelle was actually there, freshman, sophomore. And so I knew all her friends. I knew their parents. It was such a small community. And so I don't know if me living in that lifestyle my whole life has allowed me to help me do what I do now because now I'm in, talking global. Like I'm in crowds of 100,000 people some nights. So it's like, I don't know. It's, it's a weird interesting dynamic but i wouldn't have it any way like I'm not, i was never a number in high school or church or ccd or all the stuff i did as a kid or these camps you'd go to like i i knew everyone by the first day mr and mrs and like i just 
I don't know if I can understand if I had to relive my life. If I, I don't want to be John number six. I'm John Guidari. And so know me, I know you type thing. It's it's just fascinating for me. With you working in such densely populated cities as you're touring, you know, well before when you were doing protection and then and now on the security side, um are are you kind of struck by that community that you grew up with? Because the reason I ask that, a lot of us are now there's just so many of us in some of these cities. Where I live, I'm in Ocala, but we're in this subdivision and it's a central like lake uh, football pitch there's a pool there's tennis courts and then they've got these communities around and when people romanticize about you know the kids used to come home when the lights came on that's what they've created here again and i see that community and we have people literally from all over the world here you know different religions different races um and our children all play together and you know are they all harmonious of course not there's you know there's people that, that bump heads but overall this is what i see as america and you hear a lot of the people that came from smaller towns there was that and i kind of had that i grew up on a farm but the neighboring town you know we had the butcher and the baker and the the, you know the optician and you knew them all by by name and this is what i feel like we're missing in the u.s is that we've lost that sense of community that at that um philosophy is it takes a village so we all roll our sleeves up and help raise everyone up and it's kind of now behind closed doors, behind screens, and we've lost that positive element of tribalism. I remember going up where it'd be like, my parents would be like, hey, it's time for dinner. And that's the first time you wash your hands for the day. You've been outside all day, drinking water from the hose, helping your dad with cleaning the gut, like just yard work, gardening, all the stuff, running around with your kids, building tree forts, having rock fights playing uh, cops and robbers where it was politically correct to do so, stick fights, like all this crazy stuff, watching your older friends, brothers or sisters do these dumb jumps off skateboards or bikes that look like they break their bones every time. It's And I'm watching that kind of dissipate with kids get lost on video games or their iPads or – I mean, kids can't even cross the street now without looking at their phone. And so by watching my older sister, my, my sister's a while, raise her two daughters – her and her husband, they're, those kids are making mud pies. They're collecting flowers and making crazy stuff in the yard, and they're doing arts and crafts, and they're, they're protected by the ridiculousness of some of the stuff going on in schools today uh, with in terms of like the whole push to like this the sex education thing at such a young age. And I mean, that's a whole other bee's nest. But they're, 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 they're kids first and foremost. Sure, they have to go through their kindergarten, first grade stuff, but they still make mud pies with their grandmother. They're still in the yard doing all this little stuff, arts and crafts at Christmas time and making these little handprint turkey things that those kids make that year. It's just it's just stuff like that where it's like I love doing it still when that we're all together for holidays. I could be with them doing arts and crafts and dress up and like all this stuff where it's just like why are we not pushing that type of stuff to our kids? Now it's, I remember growing up with, you listen to like Raffi, uh, some of these other like early, like super clean artists, music growing up. Now it's kids are listening to wet ass pussy when they're third grade because, because media and record labels tell you, Oh, this is the number one hit in the country. No, it's for who it's like, it's, I, it's just so frustrating. I miss those times where you go out there and play wiffle ball or hit golf balls for eight hours with your friends 
drinking Gatorades and hose water. Because we still talk about this stuff today. We, we wish we could still do it. We can't, though, because that was three houses built in that lot we used to destroy. So it's it's times times crazy, man. I wish there was a way to slow it down. And if we can't slow it down, bring back those old times, like you said, where it's like those communities you could build where you watch those TikTok reels of like local street kids of all walks of life play basketball at the end of a quarter, and then the cops show up, and then the cops are playing with them, and then everyone gets everyone's believing in each other. Uh, it's just it's just super rad. It's, I I love that walking to a grocery store and you know your dentist's family still, you know your doctor, the eye doctor, all these people, the guy that pumps your gas, you see him at church, and you're talking about life, and it's like you just appreciate each other. It's stuff like that. It's like there's got to be a way to bring that back because if we don't. This everything is doomed, and it's just sad. I can't help but feel that the reason why we're getting all of this like hypersexuality now is because of the kind of Victorian pilgrim mentality that we yeah. had before. Because I remember coming coming to America twenty years ago, and you'd watch a Rambo film, and he'd mow down a hundred Viet Cong, but they'd blur out a nipple, and I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? Like the right, Europeans. Right. I mean, not the British are known for being super liberal sexually but you know you look right. at scandinavian and, and spain and france yeah. you know top of speeches and everything and we've, we've got it so backwards that there's almost so much shame being driven on the sex side that if you pull the bow back tight enough eventually the reaction is hypersensitive the other way and now you've got like rapey songs telling young girls oh it's fine to be abused this way that's what sex is like no it fucking isn't you know Right. What was that Christmas song? It was in the news. Uh, da, 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 where they all like people tried censor it, right? Baby is cold outside. Yeah. Yeah. Like all these people. Like, it's just crazy. Like back then, it was okay. Was okay. Now people hate it. Yet wet ass pussies out. So it's like, where do you draw the line with any of that stuff? Exactly. Which is why I think we can't. Again, it's like with the suicide thing. I think that mental ill health. Yeah, has caused such chaos in people's minds that that's the thing. They're scrambling at all these things. None of it makes sense. And the middle ground is, as we discussed, you know, suicide, um, addiction, overdose. That's middle ground. Let's talk that. Whether you're rich, poor, white, black, gay, straight, whatever, this is something that affects us all. Obesity yep. and the disease that comes with it affects us all. Let's start there. Work in the middle. But every time things go to an extreme... The, the kind of mouthpieces of both extremes get all the attention and the normality in the middle, for example, during COVID, the health of the nation was completely lost. And then now, you know, post-COVID, nothing has changed. America's getting sicker and fatter, but CNN and Fox don't seem to care about that anymore. So, Yeah, it's uh, to your point, like I, I remember like with the whole pandemic thing, like commercials, I used to love watching commercials, just the art of them and like how super creative they were. But when you watch a, a commercial today of a new soda, and I'm guilty of drinking a Mountain Dew. I love Mountain Dew. And I know the sugar is terrible for you. But I realized with the pandemic, those sugars are killing you. And I always felt like shit when you drink a lot of it too much. And then, so I started to weed myself off of it. And I feel great every day now where I, I, don't eat SP, I don't eat past 9 p.m. I cut as much soda as possible. If I drink a soda uh, or something, it's got to be carbonated, either water, like a Topo Chico or Perrier, whatever it is to have that taste in my mouth, but not like the sugars. I watch those commercials of like the healthy stuff. 
where it's like, oh, cool. But then you watch these commercials of this new soda, this new sugar, this new potato chip. It's colorful. It's loud. It's got these celebrities attached to it. Of course, people are going to be sucked into it because the kids see that or people who don't have weak minds look at that and be like, oh, I'm going to try this because it looks sexy. It looks colorful. It's like, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it all goes back to what you said. The people that do these ads for these companies know what they're willingly putting people in the ground by absorbing these sugars and eating these fast food. And I'm not saying you can't do this stuff, do it in moderation, but realize you have to put a lot of hard work in. If I drink two cans of soda today, I got to put so much work in tomorrow on a show day to go back to how I was feeling before that if you're not willing to put the time in to do that, then what? Do, why are you falling into that trap? Well, it's about the environment too. There's a lot of people that will look down their nose at the obese population, for example, and go, all you got to do is get up at four and run it's 10 easier, miles. It's harder than that. Yeah. Exactly. But it's environment. So for example, post-pandemic, our children are still going to schools where the soda vending machines have been put there by Coke and Pepsi. There's fast food and processed shit in their cafeteria. Their PE programs have been cut. And then you add in the devices, like you said, that's not an environment that's setting them up to thrive. But imagine if their baseline at school was home-cooked meals. And that's not a crazy thought. That's what they did in schools till not too long ago. You know, PE and recess all the time. No, none of those shitty foods allowed there. So now you've got to deliberately go to a store and seek that out versus it being normal at every school meal, every pizza party in an office. So this is the problem is all we've got, if, if we were going to really learn from the pandemic, we would have really changed a lot of these things. We would have we would have gone, wow, this disease was killing us because we were already sick. That's that's the reality. Right. Even the anomalies under there somewhere was was a weakness. So let's make our res- our population healthier. So whatever comes next, because it will, we're going to be more prepared and less people will die and more people will be able to keep the country from moving. But it wasn't. And like you said, it was, oh, well, you know, now we get to fast food you know uh what's the right word fast track our shitty food direct to the doorstep now people don't even have to get in the car they don't even have to leave their yeah. house now you can get it from basically restaurant to your cake hole <laughs> in one uber eats yeah. moment so we've gone even further back and so yeah i agree with you 100 percent. if we're going to make this country healthier you have to of course have responsibility but you have to create an environment that teaches responsibility and good choices I wonder, because I remember the time when I got older in school, like, uh, you no longer have recess. And, like, me, recess back in the day was us, like, literally doing pull-ups, push-ups, running around playing tag for 45 minutes. And who could hang on the monkey by the longest? Who would go back and forth three times in a row? It was, like, all physical, guys and girls. And I look back, I go, we were, like, trading, like, we are like, for whatever, but it was the most cathartic. And I felt like my mind opened up the rest of the day. Like, the recess for me was usually between like 9.30 in the morning or like 11, like right before lunch or right after lunch. And like the hours before, I was like, whatever. But after after like the recess part of lunch, those last three, four hours of the day, my mind was so alive and awake that I felt like, like I needed recess to push my brain to open up and expand and be like not only physically tired, but mentally tired as well. And I, I was just like, as kids grow up now with like cousins and friends who have kids are like, Oh, they don't have recess because it was, 
Like what what person said that we need to get rid of this aspect of this? Because if they're worried about bullying and dodgeball or stuff like this, it's like they're what are you talking about? Bullies exist now in science class if you don't know what the equation uh of whatever. So it's just like it's just I don't know, it's just I get so kids that are stuck playing Grand Theft Auto all day with their shades drawn are getting sun and just eating bags of potato chips. It's like where we have failed as a society. Why can't we go back into these schools and be like, listen, we're bringing this stuff back. Like who was opposed to recess? That's why I want to meet that person and be like, honestly, try and convince me. Cause I want to know if I can be convinced. I don't think I can. Well, you listen to, I had, um, Passy Salberg, who's from Finland, he's an educator there, and now he teaches the world about the Finnish system, which is basically one of the best on the planet. Yep. And and then you talk to people in sleep medicine and some of these other kind of backgrounds, and you're more productive when you have more time outside and you have more play, and, and arguably a lot of times a shorter school day or work way. And even some of the more progressive corporate um, organizations, Google and some of those, they're, they're realizing that a four, nine-hour work week is actually as if not more productive than a five-day one yeah. because you just you know your inbox is always full you kind of find a way of dragging it out a little bit well they went to him and like, well if he gave you another day off do you think you'd be able to get the same amount and people start being innovative and coming up with ways of making it better and so now beautiful four days and then three days off that's that's amazing and this is what you see in um, finland and some of these other school systems that are so much better than us academically on on the the rankings and it's less is more because they're looking at the child holistically first and they actually put a lot more funding into the lesser served areas because they understand you know that they need more help it's as simple as that but then you know there's a lot more time with um recess a lot shorter days and then i don't think they get homework until they're i forget which grade but it's several grades into it before they even get homework because as you said you learn, but you still need to be a child and all those social, you know, um, lessons that you're getting. I mean, that's all equally as important as math, English, and, you know, sciences. What's your, what's your biggest fear as being a father? I don't have a biggest fear because I am so fortunate to have the background where I've understood a lot of things from a different you know, lenses. So to have a dad who was a firefighter and a paramedic and sees worst case, which we'll get into obviously your first response kind of uh, experience. Um, but then I'm also a coach and an athlete, you know, and then I have this podcast where I speak to farmers and, you know, you name it, these amazing yeah. people. I had such an amazing tool belt just gifted to me by chance. I grew up on a farm. My dad is a veterinary surgeon, you know, just so many things went right in James Gearing's life that I feel like I had a lot of tools so I could offset a lot of the damage. But what I worry about is the kids that don't have that. You know, either the both parents are working all hours God send and they barely get to see their kids because they're trying to just put food on the table or one is absent or both is absent and they're living with grandparents or uncles and aunties. And, you know, or they're a fully, you know, intact family, but generationally they've always eating shitty food and not moved and and that's passed on that way so my biggest fear is it's not a fear it's what's happening now it's worst case scenario you know we have people that we pay so much in taxes to be leaders at the local level the state level and, and the national level and you know 
I'm, I've been very open on this podcast. I fucking can't stand at least the last two presidents that we've had because they've done nothing but divide. And you are in right. that pinnacle position. If you're not affecting the, the health of the nation, healthcare, security, education, the most basal things, because you're too busy talking about so-and-so's parking tickets or you know whatever it is, whatever distraction, yes. then shame on you shame on you you had four years or eight years to make a huge difference in this country and you fucking blew it so that's my biggest fear is and then because of that division the other fear is all the way back to the ownership that we've lost the the empowerment that we can make a difference in our household and then we can step outside our front door and we're making a difference in our street you know our community if we can get leaders to fire that element up and add mentorship into communities i think we we could make a huge huge difference but even people that i've been really excited coming up kind of looking like they're going to posture for this latest race now now they're just the same fucking person again they lost that drive and that leadership and this is what i stand for and now they've become just a fucking soundboard again so it's so disappointing it really is do your kids ever come home and you like say something about like another friend's parent where you're like what the hell like, is it like how like how do you like interact? So I want to have kids eventually one day. It's like I say all this stuff now, like I see or what I perceive to see as a problem. But until I have kids of my own, maybe that other father that's talking about how he's raised a kid, maybe I don't understand because I don't have a kid yet. But do you ever come across where it's like how often do you learn something positive from another parent? I see great parenting all the time. And I got to say that some of the the firefighters, you know, that I've worked with are some of the best mothers and fathers I've ever seen. So I'm constantly learning. But to come at that a slightly different perspective, I, like everyone else listening, when we first have our first child and I've only got one, you know, biological and one stepchild, one bonus boy. um, So I kind of had a one shot at this baby that was, you know, gifted to me. And so I did the kind of usual stuff. I was reading all the books, what to expect when you're expecting and all that stuff. I was all in as a father um, and got to the point where we were doing the whole time out thing. And uh, he basically called my bluff. You're supposed to put them in for as many minutes as they are years old. And then you say, all right, we're going to talk about what what you did. And then you're going to come out. And he goes, I don't want to come out. And I was like, fuck, well, that <laughs> there goes that whole concept. So anyway, but it was around the time that he started understanding, really, like truly understanding what I was saying. And so my aha aha moment was just kindness. uh, What you're doing, is that kind to other people or is it unkind? So whether it's sharing, whether it's throwing food, whether it's, you know, whatever it is, it boils down to are you kind or are you not? And that extends to the roads. Are you using your blinker to tell people, hey, I'm going to break and turn here in a minute, or are you an asshole? You just slam on your brakes and turn. You know what I mean? It, it extends everywhere. So that's been the thing that's carried over in mine are 22 and 16 now. It's the same thing. So if another parent's philosophy lines up with that, then I'm all in. You know, are they? I've had people say, oh, if someone picks on my kid, I'm going to tell them just to punch him in the nose. I'm like, okay, well, yeah, you know, if they're cornered and they don't have a choice, yes, but what about mitigating what about you know all the other tools that you can use so some of that bravado parenting i disagree with but i would yep. say there's far more good parents out there than than yeah you know not that's awesome so well speaking of you know you, you took kind of led me through your path as far as you know your early life walk me into the world of the secret service 
So in 2000, so I graduated high school in 2004, and then I've always knew I wanted to be in law enforcement or serve military. I had a dream of what well, the first time I watched Hunt for October and started like dabbling like the Tom Clancy world of all that. Uh, I would love to be on a submarine. I always thought that'd be the coolest thing. I love being alone. I love the isolation of it. I love the fact that there could be attack from Germans and Das Boot Russians, like all this crazy stuff, right? And so I went to military college in 2004. Um, Norwich University. I started. In, I did four years of the Navy ROTC. I love the idea of the military college, uh, just because I love being told that how to march properly, how to make my beds, how to roll up my uniforms and starch, and use brasso to clean my buckles and fire shine my boots. I love just the structure of that. On top of a legit Division three athletic program. I ran across country and captain championships for four years, played lacrosse. I could also get a world-class criminal justice program um, and get a degree, but also the structure of the military. Cause I think I, I, people, my friends were growing up. Why would you want to do that? Like, but I, I grew up in a household that was very strict, fold your clothes, brush your teeth, make your bed when you wake up every morning, a family that my parents had told me to do the little things every day because to make a difference. And I wanted to maintain that in a grander scale, obviously by pe- strangers. I don't even know yelling at me uh, who just came back from Iraq. And this is now I'm their, I'm just their, <laughs> their screaming vessel. And so I, I do that in sophomore year. I'm about to sign the paperwork. I want to sign the paperwork to commission as a second lieutenant in the Navy. My, I get a call. Uh, my sister, my sisters find my father on our bathroom floor, um, suffered a brain aneurysm. And so he's in a coma for like three months. And as I get ready to go to sophomore year, and my uncle take me up with my mom, he's in a coma. My fear starts saying where if something happens to my dad and my mom's a widow and my sisters don't have a father, I'm now the father figure. I don't want to be in the position two, three years from now being shipped off somewhere where I can't be home if something happens to protect them. And so I was sad that I couldn't really do what I wanted to do. But in hindsight, I was more proud of myself for making the right decision. And so I was like, well, the next best step for me, I still want to serve and protect people. I want to do a secret service. I just watched In the Line of Fire with Khalees Wood. I've watched all 24, all these shows. I think this is what I want to do. Or some other three-letter agency, DEA, ATF. I want to start kicking down doors or whatever. And my friend, uh, who's two years prior at the time, he had just grad. He started started the process of Secret Service. By the time I, he's a senior, I, I start the paperwork for it's a couple of other stuff too. He graduates. Now he's running the motorcade units for the president, Obama, doing all the motorcades around the world, doing all the advancing, all this crazy stuff. He's like John. Put all your eggs in a basket. You're going to love this. So I do that. And it's a year and a half process of background checks, entry-level post-exams, probably what you're familiar with, with uh, public service stuff, and then psyche vows, and then paperwork, background investigations. My polygraph was eight hours. Uh, stuff like that. So as you're going through the whole college process and you're still trying to maintain all your degrees and my goals have for myself and sports – which I do, and then I graduated in 2008, and uh, about a couple months later, I'm working some bullshit job ripping out uh, floorboards and rugs from water damaged places in western New England, and uh, I get a call 
in the middle of a rainstorm. I pull over. They're like, hey, you got in. Now you got to do you want to do this? So, of course. And that process, uh, Secret Service at the time now, it used to be part of the Department of Treasury. Now it's with Department of Homeland Security. So for three to four months, you have to be down in Glencoe, Georgia, to pass their basically entry-level uh, Department of Homeland Security. So I'm with Bureau of Prison, DEA, Capitol Police, whoever it is. And the basic shooting, driving, skid pad, uh, drug testing, basic level, uh, just dealing with people, how to deal with rope lines and how to deal with bomb threats and stuff, just stuff like that. You graduate that, then you go to Beltsville, Maryland uh, for the last three to four months, which is obviously specific to Secret Service, so how to survive helicopter crashes, crazy fitness levels you have to maintain, uh, shooting proficiencies, with MP5, shotgun, pistol, uh, all this specific stuff to what the student service was, counterfeit currency, uh, rope lines, how to deal with advancing, what to look for, characteristics of an armed gunman, all this real-life practical simulation round training type stuff. And so graduate that, and I do that from 2008-ish to 2014. And it, the reason why I kind of left the government aspect, I went through divorce in 2012. Um where I was only home for like 30 days that year of the campaign year with Romney and Obama. And I went through a divorce when I could drink and not be working. I would drink too much. I felt like shit. I started physically feeling like garbage and I still love what I did, but I think the, the weight of the, the relationship that fell apart and the idea of just not being home working for the government where people laugh. It's like the, the politics of the government are ridiculous it's just it's mind-numbing it'll just pull pulverize you into the bone like just a dust and the politics out here in the industry entertainment industry sure they're obviously just as stupid but i'm my own boss out here and i'm doing what i love and the only person i'm answering to is myself and the ceo so that's why i was like i want to do this type of stuff and i started doing that in 2014 i've been here ever since so I want to go back. You were on um, the Point Man podcast and you made a comment about the polygraph and the mask and you repetitive questions. One of the things that I've made observation on, I ended up testing four times. I worked four different fire departments. So that was three polygraphs, four psych tests. And I realized that it was the same dog and pony show every time. The polygraph dude would have all these things on his Gosh. wall. Oh, I've won the best. You know, I, I caught Jack the Ripper and all this bullshit. And you're like, okay. First time you're like, oh, wow, he's really good. I'm really scared. The second time you're like, oh, now I see. And, you know, what, what they're trying to do is obviously make sure that you've been truthful, you know, on your application and you know, anything that they haven't found a background check. But when you do the research, you realize from what I found, that polygraph is kind of, you know, smoke and mirrors to get you to confess about something. What is your perspective of that particular test? I find the questions they can ask you about, like, have you ever had sex relations with an animal? Or like they ask you, like, they'd be like all this normal stuff they'd ask you, and then throw these crazy questions, and then normal questions, and then the same type of question, they just rechange the wording. And then I would answer some the part of the time I'd answer the same way, but it'd be a different structure of the sentence, how I'm saying it. And they like, why are you say it differently? I'm like, well, hold on a second. I just told you the same thing. I just there's seven different ways to answer this question, and they're all gonna be the same answer. It's just gonna get there differently. And it was just like, what are you actively looking for? Because if you're looking for a if you're the problem with the polygraph for me is to, to even get to the point, at least for the secret service, 
you're talking six to eight months of background investigation with every neighbor, any person I've interacted with. If I was a piece of shit, you would have found out about it by the kid when I was nine, when I was 23. So for you asking me if I touched the neighbor's cat or I have pi- <laughs> I told I you, pet, yes, I did. <laughs> yes, if I, yes, I pet, I pet their pussy. And so, if I have, if I ever start a fire, the whole thing where it's like they're trying to make me seem like I'm a terrible child to my parents, and like how they keep rephrasing the question of when's the last time you let your parents down, or when's the last time you made your parents upset? How often do you make your parents upset? It's like, how do you want me to answer this? Because it's like I don't know. If my parents are upset with you, they might not tell me. Like, I don't know. Like, I, I'm not maliciously a bad kid. I'm not a perfect kid by any means, but I mean, I don't think I'm a bad person here. And then, so that was that would go on for the first four hours. And then the, with the government, after 3 p.m., they shut down. So they made me come back the next day and basically do the same type of thing again with a different guy asking the questions. And it was completely different. Like, it was the guy wasn't as pompous, he wasn't as douchey. Uh, it was just basically there thinking I'm just just to do it just to say it was done. But I was just like, it's just it's such a weird when everyone's just like, oh, make President Trump polygraph or make Johnny Depp polygraph or make all these people that whoever it is that's in the news and see if they're lying. It's like I don't know if you people realize the polygraph really doesn't do anything that you already wouldn't know based on even getting to that point. Because it does cost a lot of money to do it and even set it up and all this stuff. And it's like, you're trying to tell me you're not going to hire someone based on what you get from a polygraph. Like, who are you interviewing for this job? And if that person doesn't understand how to answer a question, then they should, probably shouldn't be on that job. Well, the reason I asked that, and I'm so glad you said that, because we we have a much shorter polygraph. Ours would literally be, I don't know if it's even an hour. Um, but... One of the problems that we have in the first responder profession is that there's all this money thrown in the polygraph, all this money thrown in the psych test, which is the Minnesota personality interview test or something like that. Um, but it's, as as I found out from a lot of psychologists, psychiatrists that have been on the show, was never, ever meant to be a standalone test for a first responder to be, you know, yes or no. So you put those two together. As you said, that's a lot of money that you're putting to so supposedly screen. And what I see is this box checking. My, one of the tools that I think we can bring to the first responder professions and the money is already there is to stop those two ridiculous tests. And instead, you've done a background, you've done a written test, you've done a physical test. Um, take that money and when someone comes in, whether it is going to secret service or regular law enforcement or fire, give them X amount of counseling sessions. Because as you touched on, most of us have some shit in our past. Most of us have some things that we brought in, arguably, that sent us into this, you know, this uh, yeah. line of work. So the money is already there. But when you educate people on the reality that the polygraph and the psych tests are not doing even close to what we're being told they're doing, free up that money, get rid of those two steps and take the people, like you said, a thorough background check, the physical test, the written test, etc., and then bring them in. You're going to PT them. Well, at the same time, get them in and do some sessions as well over that first six months because now you're given the opportunity to talk about pre-employment, which is very important. You've normalized the mental health conversation at the front door and you've removed the barrier to entry. So from day one, you know that your go-to psychiatrist, psychologist, counselor, whoever it is, is this person that you met 
the very first time you enter that organization. And it wouldn't right. cost these agencies a penny. They just take the money from wasting on those two tests and they put it into that instead. Yeah, I think some of the best training I've ever did uh, was at the early beginning. You go run through these scenarios. You'd watch news clippings of traffic stops or armed gunmen type stuff that happened in the news that's been everywhere. Well, they some you know to to pass certain parts of the the curriculum. What are your thoughts on what happened now? Now, four months later after your training, you see the same type of video. That's where they should be basing you on, like what you've how you've adapted to that. So, like the real, how hard is it to just watch fire a clips of a burning building or a crime scene or a traffic stop and look at that? And be like, this is where I should put the. This is real practical stuff. I want to see where this person's head at. Because maybe there's something here they saw to see why they want to become a firefighter or a cop. And it's like to to, to basically handpick someone to fit a, a, a curriculum. Oh, we'll need 20 people in this class. We're going to polygraph 25 people. Now we're just going to randomly pick five people to make them look like tongue-tied idiots and just say, hey, see you next time. It's like, you're right. It's like, where are we? We should be able to, you should be able to kill so many birds with one stone right before that person even signs the dotted line because a full-fledged firefighter or or a cop. It's, 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 I don't know. It's, it's the whole thing is just comical. Like it's like they want to, they're having trouble right now filling these spots for these positions because they've wanted to defund law enforcement. They, the, the guy that's in charge of the firefighters or whatever thinks that people have a right to loot and burn and we're not going to, we're not going to respond to fire calls and stuff. It's like, no wonder you can't recruit people. You're recruiting shitheads. They're going to just, they want to say, take yes for an answer. Where are the people that think freely and want to do the job they they do or they tend to do? It's like it just it's, there's so much more to that issue than just a simple polygraph. Absolutely. So I quote your profession quite a lot for a very specific reason. A lot of people have this impression that the modern day firefighter goes to all these fires, and we don't. You know, a lot of the stuff that we respond to is more EMS, traffic collisions, etc. So there is a a cancer of complacency where people are like, well, it'll probably never happen anyway. There's there's so many administrations and unions that oppose fitness standards, for example. A lot of our training is very box-checky again rather than realistic. Yep. And I always point to Secret Service. You guys are not having gunfights every day, but God forbid something happens, you're expected to to act. So talk to me about the training at the front door and then what was the ethos that got you to maintain that through your career? I think for me, it's like we would train. And I think it got to the point where like some of the government funding stuff, like we weren't shooting as much as we should have. Like obviously you'd have your quarterly pistol and stuff. But I remember the people back in the day, like in the nineties and early two thousands where you could go shoot a day you wanted and you weren't working. And obviously funding comes along that ammunition, like, that type of, so I get why that kind of faltered. But it was like for me, the training is you're not training you I look at some of the training, whether it's uh rope line, uh firearm, how to disarm someone, how to uh if there's a helicopter crash, all this type of stuff you trade for. Back in my mind, like, dude, this is never gonna happen. And then statistically, I was you're correct. Now, has there been shots fired? Obviously, whether it's the president or world leader, assassination attempts happen. Like, it's a real thing. And it's like, I always, even now, like, I trade for stuff where it's not about what's going to, it's what what could happen. And like, to, to kind of instill that type of, the repetition of, yes, I, 
I take a band a certain way to stage every time, or we get them a certain way every time. But for me, it's it's the training and engraving where if there's fire, there's smoke, there's it's pouring out or whatever, there's a it's snowing out. There's I can still do my job. I can still open that limousine door because I've trained when it's been pouring out, where I'm being shot at, or I've trained where I'm being grappled with, or a, a knife pulled on me. It's like to put that training in perspective is to just to just get used so much used to it where it's a great view where it's just secondhand nature. And it kind of stems from these people that just because you could own a gun doesn't mean you should have a gun. And if you do own a gun, can you clean it? How often do you train with your gun if you hear a fake noise at night in your bed, stark out? How quickly can you find your light switch, unholster the gun, make sure there's no one in your line of sight, and figure out what's going on? Like no one trades this stuff. And it's for us, it's like the training of that is such a high level where you need to. You need to know how to read someone. It's 80 degrees out. This guy's got a trench coat on. He's got clenched fists and he's sweating profusely. Is he a homeless guy or does he have a long gun tucked in his back? So it's stuff like that where you're just you're just nonstop hypersensitive to it. Even when I go out now, I go to a mall or if I sit in a restaurant, my back's to a wall. I'm always wearing sneakers out of traffic. Is People always laugh after Die Hard. I'm never going to be caught barefoot, whether I'm in a beach or not. And so stuff like that where it's like, there's something doesn't always have to be bad. That's going to happen. But when it does happen, are you mentally and physically ready for that? And with the training for me, I've always wanted to ingrain it to the point where I know I could do this no matter what's happening around me. And uh, sometimes that's tough. If people you're working with, don't put the same type of uh, effort into it. Um, but with the secret service, like I was surrounded by some incredible men and women that your mission was to protect the leader of the free world and by any means necessary. So it's, uh, it was just, it's awesome. I think that training was so, I look back now and sometimes I'm like, had I ever had to actually survive a helicopter crash on Marine one in the Potomac river? Like, could I have done it? I remember flipping around that stupid simulator enough times to make me throw up right now. So it's stuff like that where it's like the, the constant, the engraving of pushing yourself and absorbing as much training as possible, even if it gets super repetitive, because it's not. Every time you pull your gun out a hundred times, the hundred first time, now you have a a misfire. Your gun doesn't work. There's something in the chamber. You're 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 trying to do a hot reload, and now you can't because there's something happened. Your gun's malfunctioning. Uh, stuff like that, where it's just like you train for that shit. And so it's, it's, I get, I'm super passionate about it. I think if people want to be super successful, like I've grown up as a kid, my parents would take me to the local fireman's buster down at the town field where these fire teams all over would come over and do all this, pull the hoses out, shoot these targets. And I'm watching it going, this is so cool. But as I get older and then I do see those events where those guys are going up the ladders, going up higher ladders. Do you know how good you have to be at your job? to even do that type of stuff. Now add in people in a burning building that are actually life or death situation here in an environment. You're not even sure how old the building is. You don't know what kind of fire it is yet, like what started it. It's just to be that confident in a muster games and then do that in real life in a high-rise building, it's a rush, man. You don't get to that level without the, the training. What about fitness standards? How did they maintain that in the Secret Service specifically? Uh, so it was a, it was very, the basics in the Department of Homeland Security, and then when we got to the Maryland aspect of it, it was very like uh, CrossFit type. 
Now we would do specific events with like uh team bar like team events with like different CrossFit names and stuff, the kipping pull-ups, the, the hand cleans. Uh it was a lot of it was a lot of body weight though. And so a lot of, like, a lot of the grappling, whether it's jujitsu or Krav Maga, it was us just like our bodies using as like the actual workout per se. And the the heavy lifting, sure there were guys that they did that, whether it was a college or their former athletes, and that was part of their extra repertoire they did. Uh but for me, it was like in order to test, you do a mile and a half run at a certain time limit. You can have to max out on pull-ups, uh, push-ups, sit-ups. And we're talking like legit pull-ups and stuff. And to be based on your body body percentile, your age and stuff like that, man, woman, um, it was rigorous. Like to get to pass that level, I graduated at the top of my class um, with that the PT stuff. And I was just like, th- this was light. This was like. On top of the other stuff like the the baton training or firearms and stuff like you know, all these other tools you use, handcuffing techniques, all this stuff, you that stuff was only as good if your fitness was up there. And even now, I'm jumping barricades and running through crowds with singers and doing all this stuff. I'm walking in a festival anywhere from 12 to 20 miles a day. So if you're a slouch and the if you want to be at this level, you have to physically put the time in. I'm not saying you have to go CrossFit for four hours every morning, but walk, hydrate, eat healthy, sleep healthy. All this stuff is so tied into what we do, and you know this. It's like you you have to put the effort in. As you get older, you have to put more effort in because you you stuff gets starts hurt more. I'm not saying I hurt really out of bed now, but five years ago, I could go party all night, wake up at 6 in the morning, I'm ready to go. Now it's I can't do that anymore. i got to put the time in to stretch to sit in the quiet room and just meditate sort of and stuff like that, where it's, it's all interconnected. I think it's super vital to what we do. Absolutely. I want to hit one more area of secret service and then we'll progress out. There was a film recently called ambulance that featured a paramedic and it was so painful to watch. All they had to do was get a paramedic to be a technical advisor and they would have avoided so many faux pas but it took again it was an action film wasn't supposed to be you know completely realistic but yeah Yeah. but i mean they got so much fucking wrong from the medic side when you look at your career in the movies where is it done well and what are some of the the worst things that you've seen on screen the line of fire is always a classic um just because it's so well done in the idea of a stalker suicide type uh, assassination type stuff. Um, and it's one of the things too, that with that, why I love that movie so much, the Cleveland's character, suit service, like whatever the people that do that for so long, as they get older, you age out and you have to retire. It's like the people that that's why the, the psychological aspect of that movie is so unique to me. Cause it's like, here's an aging guy that loves what he does really good at what he does. But in a couple of years, he has to retire because there, there's a new younger person coming that, so I, that's why I love that movie about the psychological aspect of it. Um, when you watch movies like White House Down or Olympus Has Fallen, I love Draw Butler. I love all those movies because they're just over the top. But for people that, that watch that movie, it's like, do you realize for the White House to be attacked like that, we are talking the worst of the worst, post-apocalyptic, video game type scenario they're also the White House doesn't have a million Secret Service people running out the front door and being gunned down. Would never happen. And so I always look at that stuff and be like, it's to sell a point that this bad guy is super powerful and whatever. But I always feel like the Secret Service always comes across as very like dumb. 
or the guy that's supposed to be doing his job is corrupt. And so I'm always looking at that going, why is why is it the guy close to the president's always like the bad guy who's like the, the rat or the bull? Um, it, it's just fascinating because I think you're not allowed to film a lot of that stuff. So people take a lot of liberties. Uh, Murder at 1600 with Wesley Snipes, I thought was super rad. Like when you do like all the tunnel stuff when he breaks into the White House. Again, do people jump over the White House fence line all the time? Sure. But to get to that level inside like he did, like it's super – obviously suspect, but there's so it's just such a unique uh, working environment um, that I love the mystique about it. And sometimes when you look at that stuff like West wing, uh, the show was actually kind of cool because you were able to actually see like what real interactions are with the department of Homeland security, the department of state, the president, the fa- first family, those interactions that are really stemmed in real life scenarios, like really unique you get to know these people, right? And you see them on news all the time. And there's still a a father that's got a sick kid or a mother that's got a, a husband that's cheery like shit. But here she is. Now she's on in the press secretary's office talking about whatever. And so that, those type of things are kind of unique. But I find myself watching uh, movies and stuff like that and just be like, why would that guy holster that gun like that? Or why would those firefighters run into that building and do that? Like, th- that makes no sense. I'm not even a firefighter. I know basic safety and pass and the fire extinguisher stuff, but I'm just like, why would you, I know that's a magnesium fire or a chemical fire. Why are you doing that? Like, so it's just weird that, that there aren't more people, more structure in like the, the, the technical advisors for that stuff. Cause you're right. It's like years of firefight. You're watching. I remember the first time I watched land of 49, um, or obviously backdraft is a, a stone cold classic. Uh, but like I watch it now, it's like you talk to firefighters, you're like, well, there's still stuff there where it's like so Hollywood. But it sells, right? Like, how do you sell a guy that's uh, an arson that's inside the fire department? How do you sell it to make people want to care? Well, you make a big Hollywood production with a great cast and make all the scenes sexy and people dying when they shouldn't die, or maybe vice versa. I mean, you, obviously, you're the, you're the, you'd be the expert on that, but it is super funny just watching that stuff and every time i see stuff i'm like i want to love it but like i, I don't want to i want to watch it as a fan of the movie as opposed to oh god why would you run that route why would you take the protecting that way or why would you get in the car that way type stuff yeah yeah like why would you do cpr on a cop that had been shot who's still wearing his vest well, <laughs> that's like you know or or high school hook up, kids know that i hooked up a, i saw a movie or a show i think it was csi hawaii the cop got shot and the paramedics you can see he's wearing a vest but they put the pads on the vest and they didn't like open the vest or take anything off I'm like someone's watching us going they could be in a situation like this oh yeah bring this guy back let's go mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's funny well, that was worth asking, so thank you Yeah. well, well I want to get to your transition but just while we're straddling the two careers without going too deep into you know professional secrets what are some of the commonalities between when you were protecting the president and obviously security now with musicians when it comes to kind of red flags warning signs that people could apply to their own lives as well that's a great question um don't put everything out there social media uh yes i know it's tougher to say when you're the president or a world leader or ceo or whoever you an athlete or a musician but people 
if, especially music, like people know you're the president, you know you're the singer of a band, but little things, especially with this, the private industry, that people are so apt to like put what hotel they're staying at, or where they're currently at, or I have certain lo- rules out here where it's like, hey, don't post passes or laminates. Don't if you're gonna if you love this hotel and you take a bunch of pictures, post it after we leave and stuff like that. Where it's like. With social media, the digital age, everything is so everyone's is like has feels they're entitled to have know everything about you. And I'll had guys back in Secret Service who would tell me it's like you when you go to a different country, whether you're flying, whatever, pe- there's people always watching you. So crinkle up your keep your receipts, whether it's a tr- baggage claim receipt, like even with that information now, I know people that could you give me your uh plane ticket, I could find out so much about that person. Just these people just throw stuff willy nilly away, and with my job now, where it's like these people that are trying to get to these people's houses or write letters and cutting off pieces of hair and sending it to these their households because their address is tagged in a picture geotag because they went live on their Instagram. It's like I think we as people have a duty, especially as parents and older brothers and siblings and friends, to just protect. We don't everything we do doesn't have to be out in the open, so. Be just be mindful of that where you don't have to. There's bad guys and bad people always out there trying to get one step ahead of you. Why give them an advantage uh, by doing that stuff? And it's like, I see. It's like for me, like I would watch I, how I watch a singer out here is how I'd watch my kids. And like, I think that maybe is kind of helping me kind of when I do become a father or when with my nieces, I'm doing the same stuff I do with them as children as I do with adults who I act as, who sometimes act as children, right? So it's just a very fascinating, be hyper alert, be aware, be ever mindful. It's people are always watching and that your world that you could do as much as you want to make, maintain as perfect as it is, is never going to be perfect. And so put your best foot forward, put yourself in a position to succeed. Uh, yeah, it's, not everyone's going to get the training you and I have had with what we've done, but we all have the wherewithal to know how to do CPR. If there's a kitchen fire, know how to put it out or what to do, like stuff like that, where it's like how to do the high lick, all that type of training that we have. Sure. Mod, mod pod next door are going to do the firearms training or uh, how to get inside a burning building, what to look for, how to pull a body out, how to breathe and all that stuff. But they're going to know how to avoid a fire, who to call, be a good witness, stuff like that, where it's like that type of trade we're all entitled to, we should all have. And it's just weird to me when you go out in public at airport and someone's screaming, oh, my God, 911, you do CPR, I don't know what's happening. And like you, It's like, what are you talking What? Like, how do you not know that? Like, this is all based, I, I find it should be basic. So we'll do tours now before a tour starts. Hey, we're gonna go. We're gonna bring a nurse in. Let's get some CPR training. Let's do some bees, basic EMT training, sucking chest wound, uh, tourniquet stuff. Uh, we go hiking a bunch, and so Godfrey, one of us rolls an ankle, and we got carried out. How do we make a splint and stuff like that? Where it's like, this is all practical stuff that you don't have to be with our backgrounds. This, this is what you should know how to do. And so that's how I always push people. It's like just learn the basics, and the rest will come with that if you want to extend that training. I had one very unique perspective of your world. Um, Biden came to Orlando when he was the vice president to, I think it was a Democratic um, convention. 
and I was the the EMT at the time. My partner was the medic for your motor case. We were right behind the Bearcat, I think. And it made me realize how many resources and how much money goes for every single step. And this, I was assuming, probably wasn't like a high threat environment at that particular time versus, you know, arguably yeah. some other places in the world. This is kind of a, I guess, a hard question maybe for you to answer, but what is your perspective of the amount of money that is spent on that entire world? And then coupling that with um, the detachment that someone who is a, air quotes, leader has from their country, when you contrast it with some of these leaders in different countries that, that you know, were very well known for living very, very simply and living amongst their people. It's... Uh... Selfishly, I'm like, I love it because it's great money, especially the Secret Service or whatever. Like, at, hey, how, how long How long do you want to extend this perimeter? What we want to do? Like, the money's there. I'm going to take it, right? But it goes back to your initial point where it's like, now, as a, obviously, as a taxpayer and like all this stuff, even when you work for these people and you, you look back, it's like, this person didn't give a shit about this community he's visiting. Or this girl didn't care about this council meeting that's got uh, – stuff blocked off buildings, people kicked out or certain wings of hospitals and museums or renting out buildings just because this guy wants to go talk or do a speech or whatever. It's like, now you're kind of like all these people are the taxpayers paying for my salary and my job and all this crazy stuff we carry with us in, in order to pull off even the most simplest, minute things, whether it's him walking to grab an ice cream cone, you don't realize you're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars right there. And so is a selfishly sure I loved it, but then you're like, well, what this this means nothing. It's just a photo op. This is a four hundred thousand dollar photo op uh, with a guy that's eating ice cream cone in a place in Maine. Like, who cares? Because it's the same guy that's gonna or girl that's eventually gonna sign a bill that says screw the farmers, screw the coastal rights, screw land, whatever it is, right? Or look at Maui or Hawaii. It's like you go all these photo ops and you're only getting seven hundred dollars. Like, it's the whole thing is crazy. And so, and then you look at these leaders that are community based and they are, they're smaller in scale. So obviously, no one knows who this guy is, but you can see the respect and like how people perceive them and how they, when they walk into a room, like there's an aura about them. And I think that's what people, it's, I don't know, like it's, it's tough because when you look at like a Trudeau or a, a Merkel or a Netanyahu or Putin, all these people that are always in the news, you're kind of the about to pull off their appearance and what they do and their life they live. Does it equal the sentiment of the people they're doing this in front of or, or supposedly for, right? And so for me, when it, now in the private world, I don't a venue, whether it's Live Nation or AEG, whoever the promoter is, is going to pay for the security, law enforcement, EMT, EMS. So p patrons have a safe event. Now, you're going to go to some events where some musicians want to pontify or tell you who to vote for or how to think, and that's on them. But at the end of the day, you're still going for three, four hours of a day. You're paying willingly to go to an event that is going to do whatever it does for you. When these people that roll into a town because it's a town hall meeting or they're on a campaign stop and they're shutting down a stadium or every highway and every major road just to travel 30 feet for an appearance, 
in a county that the people aren't going to vote for you anyway. Where where does where does this end? Do I feel that people that have put themselves out there deserve to be? I mean, it's a whole other discussion. It's like I might not agree with the president, but I'm there to. I would die for that person, and there's no. I'd die twice on Sunday for them. So. I, I, get, I get the anger that comes with that. I mean, all my people are like, oh, God, this guy shutting down traffic, or here comes the motorcade, or stuff like that. It's like, I get it, but I also get that it's the leader of the free world, and it's this is a country where everyone's trying to get into, whether legally, illegally. We're the, it's a melting pot, so it's like, I get why this guy and the people around him uh, need that security, but you look at some of these other countries that obviously don't have a GDP or a no one's looking to them for advice per se, but go back to Finland and the education system. Why aren't we? But that that person can walk into your podcast room right now and give you a hug, and you think it was a guy doing Uber Eats. And that's why I love leaders like that because yes, they have their security details and stuff, but it's not Putin, it's not the president of the United States, it's not whoever that's just jamming everything down your throat, right or wrong. And so it's a fine line. I I feel selfishly, I love it. And part of me in the political world, I'm like, dude, I, I get why people are upset. Taxpayers are working their blood, sweat, and tears for something that they – I mean, why do we – why is our country – why is the White House – every other – most places you go to around the world, you can walk right up to the the houses. I mean, outside the Royal Palace and some these places, like even Taj Mahal, you get pretty close. And now we, we live in some states here, like – Capitol buildings where in some of these cities that after the pandemic, there's gates around the Congress buildings and senators' places and state capitals. It's like this is all tax funded because it was allowed to happen. Now it's like, where do you go from here? It's just it's super aggravating. Because security, we all deserve to be secure. And I think people that have higher security take advantage of people that are paying for something they might not necessarily believe in. Especially the political world, because the private, who cares? It's their money, right? Um, and people either you're gonna have security because people like you as an artist or an athlete. So I get that, but the political world, I, I see both sides, and it's it's aggravating. I got a couple of friends that were in the law enforcement side for the Capitol building. I don't want to load the question, but you yourself obviously are in that same kind of security world when it comes yeah. to that area. Talk to me about the insurrection through your perspective, because from just kind of putting my perspective in again for a second, it seems like the voices of the first responders, especially the law enforcement of that whole arena, were completely fucking removed from the conversation. And it became a political thing rather right. than the human beings that were actually affected by that event. Even when I was in the government, it would it's a process for me to get that close to some of those doors if I wanted to go to the Capitol and I had all my D's, my creds, everything. Now when you talk to January 6th, uh, people walking up to doors and windows and it, there is no way in my mind that that wasn't staged. It may be staged. is the right word. There wasn't, there's no way in my mind that there weren't people higher up that allowed that to happen. If that makes sense, because based on the training, I know that they do and I know a ton of amazing men and women at the Capitol and do the Capitol Police, all the, the law enforcement entities there. Not what uh, we were on the group text going, there is no we're laughing at the news. Like we're talking about like the firefighter movies or secret service movies. We're going, why would that guy do that? 
where why his his boss or his staff sergeant or captain or agent in charge would allow it to happen. That makes no sense. And so it's just like it's unfortunate that law enforcement and the first responders get put or get allowed whether they allow themselves or get used as political fodder on either side of the spectrum. And it, it, it put a light to like, I, I was to the point where it's like you, this whole idea of like defunding police after the whole George Floyd stuff. And then now you make law enforcement even dumber by like these people walk right through the front door. You, you and I, uh, if we were in our house and there's protesters coming to angry mob of people, with flagpoles and baseball bats and whatever, anything that you could construe, if they're holding a gun, like a gum wrapper, it's I I see a reflection. I think that could be a die for a gun. I don't know. And I, if they want to come into our house, they're not coming to our house. Yet we willingly let these people in our house in costumes for uh, photo ops and and even the content and videos they put out of law enforcement acting in a certain way, it didn't seem real. It seems super stage or like an actor. And then you have all these people that want to talk about this. They can't because if it's appeared to shut up or they can't talk about what really happened, it's just frustrating. Like you can't, you can't win here because I think the people, if they're allowed to do their jobs, that never, that never would have happened. It should have happened. Well, I appreciate your perspective because yeah, I mean, one of the guys I know, you know, he can't talk. There's a restraining yeah. order or a gag, gag order, excuse me. Yes. So, you yeah. know, it's, you, there's no better voice than someone like you to look through your lens at that event. Yeah. It's like, I don't, like, here's the thing. I don't Monday quarterback and I wasn't there. I don't know what it sounded like. I don't know what the noise sounded like in real time. The, the breaking of glass or what was said, or the, I didn't see like the bike rack being moved. But when I see video of bike rack being moved, and I know how perimeters work and what, how we can kind of control what's a clear area for it to willingly happen. I, I don't know. Like when you, if I was in a position, do you listen to your superior officer? If the chart is the commands go from like, how, where do you put yourself? Because I look at that crowd. There's not a single person in that crowd. I could not walk up to you face to face and not be, I would not be intimidated by a single person in that crowd. Now, a hundred of them wearing elk hats and dressed like honey badgers, uh, waving American flags. Would that scare me? No. So I don't know. It's just it's just super disheartening. I, I want the truth to come out right or wrong because lives were changed that day forever. And if something really did happen and then we, yeah, people lost their lives that day. Whether people were shot or guns were pulled. And so it's just like, where do you... I, give us the truth. We deserve the truth as hu- human beings and citizens of this country or whatever country you're in. If you're in that, why is why is it why is there a cost to truth? Why is it so overtly skewed or protected from people that deserve to know the answers? That's why it's like that's one of the reasons I left the government. It's like you work for organizations that aren't telling people what's really happening, or it's just it's just disheartening because it's like I get there's some secrecy. And there's a political way, like, hey, if there's about to launch an attack or there's a war cup, like, I get all that stuff because you have to move, play chess, right? But when you just give us pieces of a game board and let uh, and tell us how we should think it should play out or what's happening, that's not fair to us. We deserve better. I agree 100%. And like you said, real humans were affected by that, whatever the, Correct. the backstory was. Correct. Yeah. Well, well, I want to go to your transition and, and into the role that you had now. Now, 
that actual kind of conversation, the transition conversation is different for, for different people. And there's a lot of people out there, especially if they've been in, in uniform or a version of for quite a long time, you know, there's that tribe, there's that purpose, there's that identity piece. What was your transition like for you? And, you know, if it, if it was somewhat smooth, what was it that you did well when you look back um, that would be valuable for other people to know? I think for me, the tr- there was a lot of fear because it's like you're leaving – you put eight years, I could maybe done 20, 25 years if I want to keep extending it, a full pension. So there's this fear of why yes, I'm doing what I love, but why would I leave the government? Because you like you work so hard to get there, and the perception is, oh, you're secret service, like you're Billy Badass. Like even my parents or close friends that obviously would stand by me no matter what I would do, were like, you sure about this? Like it wasn't putting down on me, but it was making me am I sure? Like I can't suck this up. Like I'll find another girlfriend or a future wife. I can suck this up. I can make this work. And it's like when you have that fear, you start to question whether you really do what you love. And I think that was my toughest grapple because it's like if I'm willing to leave the secret service to go private, you've got to think you're batshit crazy. And most people think you would. Now, in hindsight, look where I am now. I've got one of the biggest – help run one of the biggest private security firms in the world – we're talking bands and stuff, touring stadiums everywhere, nonstop. And I made the right decision. And so for me, I like to think that people that are in that position, whether uh, you're a firefighter, you're a cop, you're a government three-letter agency, whatever it is, you military, you can still do what you love and find that passion stronger in another avenue based on what you've kind of do, right? And it's like, I never want, I, my biggest advice I give to people is when the transition out is to find your passion, maintain your passion. If you have to retire, you want to get out for different reasons, maintain that passion because that's, what's going to drive you to push through the fear or the self doubt. And it's tough to, when you do something for eight years and it's like, now you're your old boss. Like there's a lot, there's a lot of fear to that. There's a lot of, now I'm responsible. If there is a fight in a crowd or a singer, someone from the audience gets on stage or I have to react or there's lawsuits, there's you're talking possible millions of dollars and I'm the face of what I'm representing. And so my actions are seen by everyone in every video, everything I do, I'm there. So it's like, how do you, how do you maintain that? And so I, this the the transition long story short was i there the i had a fear of doing going private but my the hindsight that my fear was not finding my full potential and pushing myself through that what i perceived was the fear of changing and i it's those days where you're kind of like i'm so glad i did what i did and then before i did that there'd be mornings i'd wake up going there's no way i'm gonna do this i'm gonna suck it up What's another eight, 10 years, couple of two more asshole presidents, whoever it is. I, I love my job, right? Travel the world, ride around, do everything. And uh, I, it's, it's tough that the transitioning is tough to anything from a big, uh, a father to a husband, to a single, to a, now you're a parent or now you're a, now you run a company with 10 people and, They've got health issues to worry about. Now you have to take worry about their kids and work with co-op, like all this stuff. You're just like, is it really worth it? And I have found my passion and I will defend that. And I think I am motivated every day 
to maintain this level of passion. And sure, some mornings I wake up, I'm like, I gotta throw some more logs in this fire because this sucks. But like, as that fire burns, it gets darker and redder, and it's redder than it was the day before. And I try to maintain that. And any advice that people listen to this, where it's like, if you're a military kid that you did your four or six years, you want to change it up, or you no longer want to be a firefighter, or you don't want to be a cop, or you want whatever you you're you've been a sous chef your life. Now you want to be a head chef. You want to become like this next level chef. It's like put all your eggs in the basket and just push yourself. You're never gonna. When people say, "Oh man, I wish I could fly," eventually, whether in our life or our time, one of us is gonna our, one of us is gonna have a kid that's gonna learn how to fly, and we are the only thing in our, our way of stopping ourselves and having those dreams. Just do it, and so it's like, sure, it's easier said than done, and you might have to do backup plan or. But you know what? If I have to go from the White House to the Capitol, there's 20 ways to get there. But you know what? I'm gonna get there, and I think that's my best advice for someone that's has that doubt or fear of transitioning into like a new job or a career. It's scary shit, man. And I, I think if you have the passion, the love of what you do, it'll be all right. I agree completely. I mean, I went all in with this, cashed out my retirement and I have no pension at the moment, but uh, you know, I answer to no one, you know, and I have conversations like this. So I can't speak highly enough of, I think it's good to, you know, spend some time in that career that you're in first and, and, accrue that skill set whether that's five years or 25 years whatever it is but i think so many of us don't realize how many skills we accrue and a lot of firefighters go well i'll go teach at the academy a lot of cops go well i'll go do security you're thinking so myopic you know correct you you are calm under pressure you are a problem solver you're a team player there's all these things that you could apply to a thousand different things and i think the other secret source is it was a desire to serve that took you into this profession. There's a thousand other ways to serve others outside of a uniform. Yeah, it's like so. I, like the, even like the working in the food pantries. I, my dad, when I was living more at home, not traveling as much, you go to the food pantries. My dad and stock up the pantries for Thanksgiving and the holidays, and you're serving others. You're protecting others in a sense because now you've you've nourished them because they can't afford food and now you've, you've stocked them with blankets and food and there's just this, the protection. It, it's weird because every time people are like, Oh, protection is you're the bodyguard. No, you're, you're protecting everything. You're protecting free speech. You're protecting that person's right to protest. You're protecting that person to take their kid to school and ensure they get home safely. You're there's just protection. That has a physical thing. Like just surround yourself with the right people and find like a, something that just drives you and just, it's the idea. It's like, I don't, and I, I say that, but I look at it like physically, yes, I am there to do what I do as a bodyguard or security director. And I I don't look at it that way. I look at it more as sure the physical aspect of physically doing something, but you're there as a presence. And even your sheer presence of the aura you carry into a room you can dissolve and fix so many solutions, but not even opening your mouth with a smile, with a gentle wave, with a respectful eyes forward, eye contact type stuff. And it's like that's this stuff goes such a long way with that. I want to hit one more area before we go to some closing questions. One of the things that seems to come up over and over again when you hear bands talking about their overall life, whether it's documentaries or, you know, whatever it is. 
the playing of the stadium itself, the resonation, you know, with the audience, you know, like I said, the sea of, of cameras or back in the day lighters when people are singing yeah. along with you. I think the Lewis Capaldi um, video went around yep. recently where he had kind of a breakdown and the rest of the fucking audience just sang for him. Beautiful. But you hear also about the road and it seems to mirror the firefighter in the station, the military member deployed overseas. So talk to me about that, because, again, that seems to be where a lot of people that are doing what they love seem to struggle. It seems to be like the dark side of that whole world. It's a I have seen more people fall apart on the road. Relationships fall apart, marriages, uh Cussy battles, alcoholism, drug addiction, sex addiction, uh, suicide, suicide attempts. It's a – the people that are successful on the road are the ones that aren't using the road to run away from a problem. And so I guess what I mean that is like if you're willingly talking about you have an addiction and you have a mental health days or something like that, it's like if it, in fact you're talking about it, you're not adding to your problem. It's an addiction you have, but you're you're looking for the help and guidance, and you want to surround yourself with men and women out here that may have gone through it or know someone's gone through it, but are going to be with you from 6 a.m. to 3 in the morning when you're working. And the people that come out here that think that being on the road is all glamour, there's a lot of shitty days. And the, a lot of the first world problems that people – like sometimes some festivals, you don't have hot water for the day. You don't have Wi-Fi. You don't have proper catering. You don't speak the language. There's issues. It's shitty weather. And yes, those are all very, very first world problems. But that adds, those are just little pinpricks where someone that have a stable mind and body that just opens the floodgates for them. And so if you had a fight with your wife at home on the road the night before and you wake up to do your gig and now you're shitty to a local person, it's not their fault you had a fight with your wife. And so now that just permeates the rest of the day where it's like anger boils up and there could be a fight and loadout. Because now you're still pissed off each other and all this stuff. It's like how to manipulate your mind into, yes, not everything's perfect at home, not everything's perfect on the road, but you can't do both. And so the people that come out here that think they're going to tour for a year just to hide from the fact that they are talking to their daughter or their wife is cheating or their father's sick and they know that if they're at home, they're going to worry all the time and being on the road is the best thing. It's like, well, step back a minute and ask the people in your circle. They're probably going to tell you otherwise. And yeah, the road, man, the, I remember uh, I was with Nickelback and we got the call from a mutual friend uh, that uh, the singer of Stone Temple Pilots OD'd in his bus. Um, can't think of his name. Sorry. Terrible. Uh Scott what was his name? Weiland? Scott Scott Weiland, yeah. And we all just sat back and we're at dinner. We're like, holy shit. Like, here's a guy who's on top of the world, incredible songwriter, obviously demons. And he died alone in his bunk, in a dark bunk. And it's like, so people see that music and on the stage and all the velvet revolver and looking sexy and shirtless and all he's a god playing all these stadiums. It's like he died alone. And that's what hits with like people out there, not just him, but crew people that have suicide or purposely overdosed. And you're just kind of like, man, it's sad. They're running away from something, which I, which ironically, on a, you're doing a job, you're on the road, you're literally on the road, and you're you're driving further away or closer to these problems every day, 
but it just goes through a different city. And those problems don't go away. Like, I don't know. Yes, I'm in a position to be successful and do what I do, but if there was a problem where I had a new kid coming or uh, one of the reasons I don't even own a dog is because I would miss that dog out here. I don't want that distraction. And so, but you throw in kids, how much harder is this job? And knowing people that I know that in this industry, that they, you have a sick kid out here, your first worry is your family first, as it should be. But you still have to do your gig. Otherwise, if you don't do your gig to the level you're known for, you might be let go. Now, does every gig laugh or death? No. If I mess up and someone gets on stage or a gun gets in backstage somewhere and someone does that, yes. But if you miss a guitar string or stairs on a tune, sure, people will be pissed, and rightfully so, because you're not doing a job, but it's not life or death. And so I'm just, I don't know, like the road is a very dark, scary. That's why I love uh, Cormac McCormick's The Road. Yes, it's post-apocalyptic. And like this isolation of being on the loan with your kid when you're fighting off these cannibals and the world's ending and like you're everyone's dying around you, there's no hope. The road I'm on, there's shiny lights, there's neon lights, you're driving through Vegas, but you're also at the end of the day, you're in your bunk, curds pulled, lights are off, and it's just you. It's up to you to wake up the next morning and keep doing this. And so it's a it's a scary place. It's I don't the people that jump out here, if you if you have a, a young, spirited heart and you're passionate about this, you could do this. But if you have that baggage and understand what really is going on here, the mental and physical aspect of this, uh, it's it's tough. So, well, I'm glad I asked that question because again, so yeah. so many parallels, and this is the thing, you know, soldiers are human beings in uniform, yeah. firefighters are human beings in bunker gear. And it's the same experience, you know, musicians are human beings that can play guitar or sing. But, you know, there's so many elements that pull us all together. That's why I love these diverse yeah. conversations. No, yeah, I love it. It's, I love talking about this. I don't get to talk about this stuff a lot. So it's very cathartic for me as well. Beautiful. Well, I want to throw some closing questions at you before I let you go. That's okay. Yeah. So the first one I love to ask, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Are there books I'd like to recommend? Um, yeah, there's a couple. Uh, I don't know if he's been on your podcast, but Jason Sautel, he was a uh, Oakland uh, firefighter. I'll put him directly to you, actually, because he'd be great for your guest. He's got a podcast, too. I read his book. Um, yeah, what's it? Rescue? The Rescuer. Rescuer, yes. Yeah, he's been on my and, show already. He's, he's, okay, he's, he's so, an amazing guy. I love him. I love his message with faith. And that's what I f- truly, the first book I read of a firefighter. And I read a smoke jumper one, too. Um, the guy that jumped into the brave, only the brave story. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And those, I read those two books last year and I can't recommend them enough just because the idea of what heroics really is, but also like with the rescuer, the, the, the moments in the department before the fire bell rings or just after like the human aspect of what goes into a firefighter. That's like, for me, it was the first time I was like, these are, humans with dealing with all this bullshit outside of what they do it, yet you say people that say racist names or call them all this shit they'll be the first people to run to that building to save them and that, that just it kind of blew my mind so if people want to read that stuff i love those books 
Um, and that was Brenda McDonald's book about yes, the Prescott. Brenda McDonald, yeah. I'm yeah, blanking on yeah. it because it's not Only the Brave. It's got a different name and I'm blanking yes, on it. Yes, the movie but... was called Only the Brave with yep. Josh Brolin, yeah. Um, i trying to think. There's so many. So I've had a lot of guests on my podcast and the books like from Donnie Dust, uh, Earth Rover, uh, about living like the paleo diet and doing like this paleo living style of being a, a scavenger and living off the earth. Just stuff like that is just mind-blowing to me. Um, there is uh, – I've had a bunch of authors on the podcast, like write nonfiction and fiction stuff, like A.M. Adair, uh, Jason Piccolo, um, uh, Eric Bishop. Uh, it's people like – people just write these books and original ideas that just stem – it's just crazy how the mind can create these stories of just like – outworldly uh, things. Um, there's a book I want to read now where the, the video is going all over streaming and like TikTok and Instagram reels. But this guy that wrote this fantasy series where he kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And then one day uh, the publisher is like, we're going to do this, but the only way you can unveil the cover of your book is in front of your class. He's like a principal or a teacher. And so he's unveiling this video from a student body that no, he's been trying for years to get this book made and he sees the cover. He just breaks down in tears in front of his student body. And like, I'm not a big fantasy reader per se, but I am terrible at remembering books, obviously, and authors. But I saw this cover. I'm like, I can't recommend this book enough to people. I don't even know what it's about. I don't even know what but the fantasy world is creating. But to see someone's passion project come to life, how can you not want to push that forward and see someone so happy about what their art? It's, it's just awesome. I mean, but for me, The Rescuer is... I, uh, I'm blown away. It's, it, love it. It's actually one of the books I'm doing in my book club. I do, uh, with my podcast. So I can't wait for more people to read that book. I really appreciate that. Absolutely. Yeah. It's got a hell of a story. It's an interesting, the test of faith, some churches that were completely unsympathetic and then other people obviously came in his life and, you know, were the right fit for him. Yeah, no, it's, it's awesome. It's, it's a great journey. And again, back to the mental health and suicidal thoughts. And if you don't, if he kills himself and that one day doesn't meet his wife now and you don't read that book that changes, helps save a life or changes someone. And yeah, it's, it's totally profound. Great read too. Super easy. Absolutely. What about movies or documentaries? Any of them that you love? Uh, documentaries, uh, wildcat, uh, my friend, uh, Harry Turner just won the Emmy for that. Um, a couple days ago, it's a documentary on Amazon prime about a British soldier. Again, I'm going to put up direct with you. Cause I think you do amazing with him. He was a former British soldier that saw the horrors of war as suffers PTSD, wanted to kill himself, lived in the jungles of Ecuador, started rescuing oscillates and animals, opened up this thing with his partner at the time, this organization that was rescuing these things. And if the mother or father would be killed by poachers, he would take care of the oscillates. And it basically documents himself. Uh, one of the oscillates name was Keanu. And he basically helps get this animal back to be confident to live on its own. She just out to hunt, acts like the father and mother figure for these animals. It's a heartwarming, it's gut-wrenching. You'll laugh, you'll cry. He talks about cutting himself and the suicide and the mental health aspect of, yes, you're saving this animal, but now you're going to let this animal go again. Not knowing the actual, it's called Wildcat. It's mind-blowing. Uh, I watched another one the other day. Uh, former Marine... And he does this hundred this race where it's a mile 
you have to go a mile every 20 minutes or something like that. Is that I believe Chad it's called right. Yes. Chad, right. It's a seal. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I think it's, that's not called perseverance, whatever it's called. Again, terrible names. I've watched it four times. I can't even, so I, I got to, I followed this guy on Instagram ta- or, and so I was just Chad. So again, super spiritual, um, but his motivational tactics and he, you watch this guy with the mental, the, the, the physical aspect of running a mile in 15 minutes continuously for three days is like, it goes from, it's just world without race. He won it. And this document, like the mental and physical aspects of the mind games you play with people, how he pushes himself. It's such a, it was such a cathartic approach to life. It was like, everyone's like, when I recommend this, they're like, you don't have to be a, a ultra marathon runner or a physical David Goggins type person to look at their message and be like, holy shit, this pertains to me as a father or a security person or a firefighter or a writer or a cook or a stay at home mom. It's like the drive to be better and put the work in to make a difference. And yeah, that Chad Wright thing was a mind blower. Loved it. I think it's uh, one mile out or just yes. one mile. I've seen both of those titles online. Yeah. So. Yeah. Just amazing. Um, but yeah, I, I love documentaries because it's like you kind of – I watched – the pandemic, I watched like the trashy Tiger King bullshit, and that's ridiculous. But like I just love the idea of like real humans telling about their stories. And so I watched like the nutrition ones. Uh, Super Size Me, I know, is one of my favorites about the fast food industry and like how this guy just lived at McDonald's for whatever, how many days in a row – it's it just, I love learning that stuff. Uh, Pumping Iron, Arnold Schwarzenegger, obviously. Lou Frigno back in the day is a classic documentary. Um, I just love it. It's like, I love movies as well, but documentaries lately for me, if I like the human spirit behind it. And I don't necessarily have to re- understand the person or maybe they're even what their documentary is about, their message. I don't believe in. Um, like uh, the Alpinist, uh, the Free Climber ones, Free Solo. Those guys have like this weird god complex where like they're invincible and the one of them that passed away climbing you watch the documentary you're like holy shit like he did what he loved so you can't fault him but did you do the right safety precaution like you clearly did it is but i get it man like you're chasing this thing where you're invincible and it's just i don't know it's just the documentaries are rad i love them yeah the alpinist is an amazing film incredible well, speaking of amazing people, you mentioned about the British soldier from the Wildcat documentary. Are there any other people that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first mm. responders, military, and associated professions of the world? I would say uh, my good friend Jason Piccolo. He's an author. He's also the whistleblower when it came to the border crisis in the Obama administration. Uh, he also talks about the burn pits and the soldiers that dig with the toxic burning in the uh, – like Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, And he's actually, oddly enough, he's writing a book on uh, transition, like the transition people, whether military law enforcement to regular life. And uh, I did a, I'll be in the book. Um, It's like a part of his chapter about it, but he's such such a super rad, awesome dude. It's obviously with the law enforcement military, but what he's doing now for helping get funding for law enforcement agencies with canine training and stuff like that, and proper gear uh, and the bird pit stuff he does with like, he helps work with like uh, 
the Hunter Seventh Foundation, I believe, uh, which is amazing. Um, yeah, there's so many. It's like this is this is questions always tough for me because every episode I have on with a guest or I know, like it's just I'm trying to think. There, there's a bunch. I mean, for me, some of the best guests I've had, and we talked about this at the beginning. Sure, you know them from the song or the movie or the high-profile court case they're on. Um, but, like, the human aspect of what they went through to get to where they are at. Uh, William Sanderson, the actor uh, from uh, Lonesome Dove, Blade Runner, uh, what's the uh, HBO show, but the, the Western, Legendary, Timothy Olyphant's in it, uh, Deadwood, incredible character actor, but he military career and how he got to Hollywood and like writing a book and be an older actor. Like it's just people like that where I'm just like, I'm just blown away by their stories. Cause yeah, you want to talk about like Blade Runner and Harrison Ford and all, but how he got there, the military life and the bullying and stuff like that. Uh, super rad. I can honestly, I'll get easily, easily email you a list of people. It's just tough for me to figure out which ones would be great because you're such a unique approach to how you do this where I've talked about stuff I never get to talk about. And I think that's what the the best thing about your podcast is. And I think that's there's something very dear to that. And I mean that a lot. Like, this is the most fun I've had um, doing it. But yeah, there's, there's a bunch, man. Like there's, uh, there's, there's a, there's a professional wrestler that left law enforcement to become a cop uh, because he wanted to serve people. There's people like that. that I know there's like, what is like, the mind and psyche behind people like that is just super impressive and why he did that stuff. And I, uh, I have Mina Caputo coming on in a couple weeks and she's transgender leads her of life of agony. And that for a great thing for you. Cause it's like this whole life thing where you just like, this is going to be such a hot button topic because it's transgender rights. But her approach, the whole thing is don't fuck with the kids. If you want to do this stuff, do an adult. But here's the ramifications of doing this: the scars, the 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 addiction to pills, just to feel like this version you want to be, and is happiness. You really want to put the the effort and time to find happiness. And hearing her talk about this is it was mind blowing. People like that, it's just real people telling real stories, and whether they're famous or not, I think that that resonates. There's another guy. that's not Kevin uh, Black. I think his name is Kevin. He wanted to jump off the, the Golden Gate Bridge or a certain bridge, I think maybe in Central Park or Brooklyn Bridge or something, and kill himself. And a white cop saved him. And they, he basically goes on a speaking circuit now talking about that. Obviously, there's a race. He talks about the race aspect of it, but a, a white cop saving this guy, there they talk to each other and how they go out there and like advocate for like mental health and suicide awareness and stories like that where it's like, Joe Schmo might know who this guy is, but I know him, and I want to put this person in the best best position to have other people realize who they are as well. I think that's why podcasting is fun. Absolutely. I had Kev, both of them. Kevin Berthia was the guy that yes. was going to jump. Kevin Briggs was the cop, the CHP that would yes. work the, the bridge, and they were, they talked together. Actually, I want to yeah. get them back on together because it's been a while since I had both of them on now. But Yeah, yeah. It's, su- it's such a fascinating thing, man. It's amazing. And this is the thing. People, I, I got asked early, like, are you afraid you're going to run out of guests? I'm like, there aren't enough hours in the day to put these amazing yeah, humans on. Meanwhile, we've got Biebers and Kardashians on our screen, and we're like, we're missing we're missing all the good people. They could be good people if they yeah, actually address that shit. 
for me is like I love finding the obscure actors uh, that played a role in my, that shaped my life. Like this could be a throwaway guy, gang member, or a henchman in an '80s movie. But I grew up as a kid. I'm like, I wanted to be the hero. This the, how he portrays his character, and talking to him about that, and like all like that you get to understand. And for me, the research too. Like this isn't one of those things where I have to. If I have an author on my thing, unless I've read all their books, I need to read their latest book or one of their books to understand their writing process and find stuff in there that I can ask about. Because it's like I just can't jump in without taking a hundred pages of notes, scribbling, doodling on the back of napkins or receipts if I have a question in my head. One day, we're like, oh, I got to make sure I write this question because I got this guest coming. I think there's something endearing to it. That's why I love the podcasting. Is such, it's like a Jordan Peterson. You always see him writing notes. You see Joe Rogan have Jamie there helping him pull up information in real time where it's like you want the research aspect of what we do podcasting is so awesome. And I love the fact that I found my love of reading again because of it. And I just it's just a, a simple form of humans communicating and then amplifying their voices to an audience that they might listen to like, who cares about tour security? Oh, but we're talking about mental health or we're talking about fitness and stuff like that. So it's like, that's why I love that all these core ideas and concepts seep through every other avenue or different industries. So, which it's just awesome. It really is. Well, one more question before we make sure where people need uh, find you and your podcast. Yeah. What do you do to decompress? I... So for me, with I, I don't say I have a high stressful job. But yes, there's stressful days. For me, the podcasting is the perfect yin and yang to what I do, because when I'm not doing what I'm doing with the physical aspect of advancing and touring and security, I'm in my bunk or hotel room reading or researching or watching other podcasts or documentaries to figure out who these people are. Um, hiking and fishing. I know myself and the drummer out here, Barry. We started fly fishing, the fly fish last year, coming out of the pandemic to maintain where they told us this whole socially distant stuff. So we're just going to go to the woods and learn how to fish and whatever. And that's been super cathartic because we'll get together. And the best moments with that, we make these memories without even opening our mouths, just casting and fishing over a pond, staring at each other. Sure. We laugh and do dumb stuff, but it's like, that's a way to decompress. Just get out of the environment. And I think that for me, that's always been the, yeah, I've always loved the outdoors. And uh, I think for me, especially as I get older to really Take advantage of that too. So beautiful. So, firstly, the podcast. You have the uh, Spear Talk podcast. Where can people yes. find that? So, that's on all streaming uh, platforms iTunes, Stitcher, Ghana, Amazon, uh, Pandora. It's also on YouTube. Um, so, anywhere you get podcasts, you just type in Spear Talk, it will pop up. Um, so, yeah, it's one of those things too I've learned where. I put all my eggs in the basket for YouTube when I first started and I've amassed a pretty good following on there, loyal people listening. And but you never know if someone someone might have YouTube, but they only have Stitcher or they only have Pandora. So it's like my advice to people that want to start a podcast or whatever they do, make it available to everyone. If you advertise this, uh if I'm like, hey, I'm on behind the this podcast with James, it's like, well, I don't have Instagram, I had no idea you're on it. So now I got to take care of my Facebook people, Twitter. It's a process, and I wish it was a lot easier for people to have access to all what's out there. But if you believe what you do, you're going to put the effort in to make sure because you don't know if someone listens to this episode, be like it could save their life. And um, yeah, so it's like it's everywhere you get platform for podcast, YouTube. Uh, X has been really cool lately, so eventually I'm going to go over there and put all my episodes on X. 
unfiltered. You can put up to 60 minutes of a podcast on there where now you get ad revenue now through the program he set up where now people on Twitter, they only live on Twitter or X can now can watch the first 60 minutes of an episode. And if they want to hear the rest, they will search it out or they will go to YouTube. So there's different things out there. I'm always trying to learn to understand the algorithms and how to get stuff out there. But yeah, if you type in spirit talk, you'll find it. Brilliant. And then what about you on social media? Best place to find. Uh, I'm at John silver spear on Instagram. That's probably my, it's connected to my Facebook. So they'll just post on the same thing. And then Twitter is the same thing. Uh, yeah, myself with that and like the uh, Spirit Talk, that just type in Spirit Talk, it'll pop up on any social media platform. Uh, but yeah, it's social media. It's it's a necessary evil. It's tiring at times. It's aggravating. But uh, if, when in good hands and when people, you post positive stuff or stuff that gets people thinking, I think that's what's awesome about it. So I, uh, I know our core friend, BC Sanders, like with his podcast, uh, it's a very – anytime you post something like questions or trivia or, hey, what song represents you best? It's like something that gets people engaged and thinking. I bet more people reacting on comment sections on other people's posts were like, man, this is a really actually rad person. Or I got to check out their show because their humor is along mine or they seem cool. And that's when social media is cool. And sure, it sucks at times that people use it to bully people and take advantage of people, but – with what we're trying to do, I think people resonate with that. They gravitate towards good people. I agree 100%. Well, John, I want to thank you. We've been chatting for almost two and a half hours. Um, had some technical difficulties in the middle, but apart from that, it was a you know, beautiful conversation. Um, but we've gone all over the place, and you've given us an insight not only to your world, but also you know the world that you work with, which I think is important. So I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time and coming on the podcast today. No, thank you, and I'll have you a bite, so it'll be fun.